Welcome to The Outcast, the podcast from Outlaw Pro, the ultimate angling experience. So we've got a fantastic special edition of The Outcast. This is The Outcast live. It was recorded at The Outlaw Pro Open Weekend, the carp show. Absolutely superb weekend, and we had some brilliant guests. Now, the content is split into two parts. The first one, we've got some absolute superstars. Martin Locke and Oz Holness talking about big carp. Myself, I'm going to be looking at what goes on underwater. And then we've got Carp Angler of the Year, Dave Levy, looking at some of his fantastic captures from the 2023 season. So first up, it is two superstars, absolute legends of the big carp scene. We have got former world record holder Martin Locke and former British record holder Oz Holness. Just check this out. Absolutely inspirational. Ladies and gentlemen, firstly, uh, a big warm welcome to Outlaw Pro's Open Day. Thank you ever so much for coming down. Wow, what can I say? It's been brilliant down here. Awful lot of people. We're having a great day so far. And of course, we've got some brilliant stage entertainment for you. And we're kicking off with... (laughs) Yeah, we have. You're here. (laughs) And we're kicking off with these two guys. Now, as carp anglers, we all like to catch fish. Our target is to catch big fish. And these two are absolute superb big fish anglers, a world record holder, British record holder. What can we say? Absolutely superb. Ladies and gentlemen, Martin Locke, Oz Holness. <laughs> Boys, thank you for coming. Welcome. So, uh, if you can hold your microphones a little bit closer to your mouths yeah. as and when we're talking, testing, so everybody gets you. One, two. Hello, That's hello, it. Hello, I think back. everybody can hear. Uh, we're also beaming live, so if you're watching this because you couldn't make it down uh, to the day down here, the first thing I'll say is you're missing out. It's a brilliant day. There's a lot of things going on, a lot of bargains as well. If you've got time to get down, please do so. 15% off everything in the store as well. That's the commercial bit over and done with. Let's start now with big fish. Um, it takes a certain mentality uh, to catch big fish, doesn't it? It's not just a case of rocking up and, uh, and knocking one out, if you'll pardon me saying. Um, <laughs> Going to get the jokes in early. Let's talk about these big fish first. We'll start with you, Ross. Um, yeah. Talk us through the record first, you know, when you caught the record fish, that's a, that's a hell of an achievement. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was a, it, it was a known fish um, and certainly at the time, you know, it was a, a well-documented carp chased by some of the, the best anglers in the country. You know, there's people travelling down from uh, all corners of uh, the UK to, to target that carp. Um, it, was a, it was a giant, you know, a bit of a, what you call a freak of nature to some degree. Um, and... Um, yeah, I mean, it was on my doorstep as it happened. You know, I'm, I'm a Kent lad. It's always handy, isn't it? That? And, uh, it, it makes it handy. And, um, you know, I, I'd, I'd always had a great love for, um, you know, all the, the angling history that had gone on in the in the past. You know, I'd read a lot of stuff about people like Martin and what have you, and another guy that had targeted big fish um, across the, the county and the country sort of thing. And um, I had a good mate, Paul, that introduced me to... The school pool, which had a, a, a big carp, a well-known carp at the time called She, and um, I was lucky enough to catch that after a few years, and um, that set me off on that big fish journey, I suppose. Um, so to then have a, a carp that that had rocked the British record um, within half an hour of my house, I was like, you know, you, you'd be mad not to have a go. Um, but you know, I, I watched that fish grow. I was part of that journey from the very beginning. Um, but I was a young man then and it was a bit too much for me to sort of uh, take on board. You know, there was only, I can't remember, 17, 18 carp in the lake at the time. 
Um, but over those subsequent years, I'd sort of honed my skills as an angler, I suppose, on various waters. And I felt ready to have a go for that one. And um, with a lot of encouragement for some very good anglers, I, I set my stall out for that. And um, yeah, to cut a long story short, 2008, um, I slipped the net under a, an absolute monster after a great big boat battle in the weed. You know, it had all the elements of a, a great story, you know. Um, I'd spent a couple of years on the lake uh, chasing it, caught a lot of the others during that time. And um, on that fateful morning, I had a bite off of it. I didn't know it wasn't that, that fish at the time, but um, it was incredibly weedy, Coninbrook, um, insanely weedy. And uh, I had to go out in a boat. And it, it got into the weed and it was stalemate sort of thing. And um, when we got over the top of it, it was crystal clear water. It was about 10 foot deep. And um, as I sort of extracted, anyone that's been out in a boat knows when you get over the top of them, uh, they're quite easy. They just sort of pop out and, and I'm staring down, obviously, into these crystal clear depths. And as it's popped out the weed, I've just seen this enormous carp, clearly the, the carp two-tone. And, uh, and, and the and, bottom's fallen and out and of your trousers. And then everything started <laughs> to shake and quiver like it does. Um, and then ensued a 10-minute battle up and down in the boat. And uh, we eventually put the net under it and obviously back to the bank. Yeah. Um, it got weighed and, um, you know, at the, at the time I was just overwhelmed with the capture. Um, and then when they read the scales off, I was like, oh, oh my God, I started scratching my head. And then I went into a bit of a nervous panic and, uh, you know, it, it, it was a British record. And, um, yeah, that, that, you know, for a, anyone that, that's into their fishing and has gone through the whole process from catching littlands in the river to catching the largest in the land, yeah. it's a monumental yeah. moment, and um, yeah, to try and recreate it to, or, or you know reiterate it to people, it, it's a difficult one. But I think everyone can understand that, that that's a monumental yeah, yeah. moment in your angling, and yeah. uh, like, like Martin that, knows. Once you've had all the boys been round, and you know you've had the pat on the backs, you've had the beers and whatever. Then you get that time when everyone's gone. You get that time mm. for reflection, yeah. sitting on your bed. For yeah. Fucking, what just happened? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely. Things like that. And yeah. it is just like what Martin said, you know, all that for all, everyone's round, gathered round because they all want to be part of the moment. And then they all drift away and there's people packing up. And, and I, I remember distinct, everyone went home. It, it, you know, everyone packed up. And I was left there on this little island peninsula with my little puppy dog thinking, oh, did that just that was I, did, was I dreaming? Have I just yeah, woken yeah. up from a, a mad dream? It's a, it's a surreal uh, time, and um, th those moments with giant carp uh, like get imprinted on your memory, and uh, yeah, they, they it never goes away, it's, does it? It's incredible <laughs> sure. how a fish can turn a grown man into a gibbering wreck as well. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, you put like Martin's had a business, you know, got a business through this, and he's he's lived his whole life through. Uh, carp angling I've, I've had that massive passion myself um, from a young age and um, you know we put our heart and souls into these campaigns and this carp fishing if you like and uh, I think everyone knows how much it means to you and uh, and like you say a grown man you're like a gibbering wreck on the bank thinking how's this just happened absolutely um, but there it is that's it in a nutshell really you know big fish angling there's a lot of dedication goes the same it. chance of doing this no matter who you are it's just i think yeah. the word comes out it's determination isn't it yeah absolutely you've got to be absolutely yeah. focused i don't care yeah. what my mates are catching on the lakes down the road i know yeah. i've had a takes for a little while keep your confidence up yep yeah, what i'm doing works yeah yeah and single-mindedness yeah Whatever the weather, that's you know, right. Might yeah. not have been a fish out for a couple of months. Bang on, 
it is a bit poxy, fed up with these dark evenings. However, mm. what about if I get that one chance now? Yeah. 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 And that's when you just keep going and going and going. Put everything else out of your mind. Let your mates carry on catching what they're catching. That's it. And eventually, you know, no guarantees of it all, but you can't catch them at home, as the saying goes. It's never true, is it? Absolutely. You put yourself out. That's the you know the voice of many years of experience. There, uh, you know, there's no doubt about it that it, resilience, however you want to take that, is part of the deal. You know, you've got to have a mindset and a focus um, to to go through the hard times because. Certainly, chasing a lot of the the rarer bigger fish, um, you're going to go through a lot of blanks. It's, it's just part of yeah. the deal, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Um, a lot of different weather, a lot of um, scratching your head and, and doubts creeping yeah, and all of, that. Don't they? What am I doing line. here? <laughs> yeah. Someone there, else has just got forty down the road. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. and it's fishing yeah. down there, and yeah. there's always that distraction. Right. You know, yeah. con consistency. Yeah. yeah and single bloody mindedness mm. is the thing motivation's one thing but we can motivate ourselves to do yeah, all and, and selfishness as well absolutely families yeah. suffer everything yeah, yeah. suffers the weather's right i can't stay in here now I've yeah i go mm. yeah it's not right i'm going anyway i agree <laughs> yeah. yeah i've always said that uh, carp fishing is you know certainly you know you there, there's different facets to carp fishing isn't there we, we all know yeah, that yeah. different different sort of ways people go about it but certainly um dedicated focus big fish angling is incredibly selfish yeah, pastime um, yeah, yeah. without doubt well, past okay. no return doesn't it when you put in so much time yeah. you can't never let it beat you yeah. you have to keep going and going and going so there's yeah. no guarantee when you're going to catch it but bottom line is when you do yeah. it is one of those I'm, sort I of mean no disrespect to any big fish angler but if you look at all of the big fish anglers that the country's produced they've all been lone wolves mm. they're never yeah. social anglers because you two know that if you go fishing together at the same place for the same fish yeah. there's a chance that he might catch it. <laughs> well, that's it. So you, you're competing. At the end of the day, yeah, there's yeah. one. Normally, them big fish uh, are going to come out once or twice a year. Normally, a, a, yeah, a yeah. springtime yeah. capture and an autumn one, maybe or whatever. Yeah. And um, if I'm fishing on a lake with him, or <laughs> you know, I know he's he's on it. And I'm on it. We're, we're competing, yeah. and um, and there's uh, there's only a, maybe one or two chances. So uh, you've got to do your own thing and. Um, you know, I, 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 I wouldn't be telling him too much, that's for sure. <laughs> They're never going to be there, uh, what time are you getting down there? Oh, three o'clock in the afternoon, so you know, Dan Williams going to be there at midday. Yeah, yeah that's so, it. So I might try and get down there for earlier. I might just see what I can, you know. yeah, I bet them old games got played at Savoy. Oh, no, played all the time, mate, forever, I love it. Well, don't they still get played now? That's all part of Big time, yeah, massively. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So, look, we've heard about the British record. Martin, uh, you've obviously fished a lot um, at home. Um, long, long time, just mentioned Savoy. Uh, you know, you're a Kent lad as well. You've grown up in the in the hotbed of carp fishing mm. at a time when it was such a good time to be around as well. Um, but you've stretched your legs overseas, and you've actually caught the world record fish as well. Yeah, that was a funny old morning. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like yourself, we've gone further and further afield chasing the adventures, haven't we? and that's what they are—they're adventures, not just sessions. You know, the build-ups to everything, make sure you got it all right, loading the vans, making sure it's all the travel sorted out. I could go on forever, but uh, that particular session that we're talking about was the one where I shouldn't have even left the house, really. It was, it was six inches of snow outside. New Year's morning. Well, the kids at home, they're all right. It's that Christmas. They don't understand New Year. Pff, whatever. That's my Christmas. I'm going. So me and another lad, Nigel, and uh, Paul Brooks, uh, Brentwood lad, jumped in the van to do the old uh, yearly January rainbow trip. Now, you know you're not going to get many, if any, but the chances are it's going to be get a decent one. And either way, that time of year, wherever you're fishing, they're all memorable because it's so, you know, just adverse conditions all the way through. So 
down there is a lot of it's rather than casting every few hours or whatever you put the baits out and try and sit on your hands and the longer they're sitting there it's like a battle of wits the more chance you got the longer it goes on so sure enough we got down and set up on the saturday afternoon got the rods out in the evening sometimes wake up sunday morning thinking well, now i've got a few little areas of the, the swim that's not being covered four rods down there bars and channels i'm sure you all know about rainbow so i want to tell you much detail and uh, it's trying to keep your confidence up. It's like being on the seesaw, really. As your confidence goes down, your anticipation's got to go up. So, as history told me there, the longer it was out, two or three days, then comes into the zone. And it was just a little bit of crumb up bait and a bit of seed mixed up, nothing clever. And uh, what was I used to uh, term as a kebab rig on the hook, which was um, three little baits going up in size so when they sucked it in it was a job to get rid of it that's my theory anyway so uh the night before nigel says to me yeah it's ripping not looking good is it i don't know do you know what and you dig deep in your like your memory banks don't you was you know yeah, what's yeah. happened before to try and give us any little ounce of confidence does it and i remember saying to him the times on savvy when we were on there years ago in these conditions frosty at five o'clock in the evening and in the morning you walk right and it would be, in my case, Roger or Hutchinson or someone like that, Duplon handles, and they're white, white, and one of them's black. Because <laughs> it's melted, you know they've had it off. Right. And I said, and for that sort of reason, that's why I'm confident that something's going to happen tonight. Anyway, sure enough, it dropped down, it was about minus six. It was cold. About six in the morning. No, I'll tell a lie now, this backtrack was a long while ago, 2010. The, you must know about the line biters we do. They work like swing tips hanging off the rod. It's just like a dough bobbin, if you like. They're maybe the 15, 20 feet off. And what happens, you get these line biters start bouncing. But you don't get a bleep. When you do get a bleep, you really have got something in the area you're interested in. So, like experience told me. Anyway, two o'clock in the morning, out, of, out the blue, flat calm, one bleep. Looked out, I thought there's something around there for sure. Because this hasn't happened yet. It's been windy and nothing's happened in three days whatever so one eye open four o'clock two bleeps mm, now i can't get back to sleep drifted away at six o'clock three or four bleeps and the rod tips doing that right that's it then here we go i remember getting out with nigel and all seriousness saying this nigel is why we come here and i don't care i remember saying to him the night before i don't care if it's a 10 pounder anything this week will be the one anyway i'm fishing about 120 yards out in the boat jumped in there Started winding up to it, just keeping a bit of tension on. Just in my t-shirt and tracky bottoms. The cold didn't affect me at the time. There's too much adrenaline, too much in my mind what's on, well, what might be on the other end. And uh, because of the snags in there, you use 10 metres of leader. They're 80-pound unleaded. Tied to the braid, it's bulletproof. So I get above it, and it's snagged in there, but the leader isn't on the reel. Whatever happens now... It's, I've got 10 metres to play with. It could be in a circle around, it might not be on or whatever, but I haven't felt it not on. And I started bouncing the rod, thinking of, the, the trick there was if one got in the snag, I've got a H block, you know, with the old lead U shape, and the idea being, you can undo it, throw it around, and the lead will hook up the line. And if you hook a snag, the lead pulls straight, and you just do it again. And that's what I'm thinking is going through my mind. I, thought, I don't really need this aggro. It's pitch black, freezing cold, and... <laughs> So I bounced the rod a few times, all of a sudden it's come free, I've wound up, and the leader's on the reel. I came right, we're off now. And, all, and it didn't, none of that going on. It was just a real stow pulled down to the left. Whatever I'm attached to it is, 
I thought it was a tree trunk. There's a few of them in there, big dark old things that have been there 100 years. And you know when you've got a fish in the weed and you're pulling and pulling and it doesn't feel like it's moving at all. But I can see the silhouette and the trees just about moving. I thought, that's moving six inches. It's coming up. It's right directly below me. And I really did think for that moment it was a big stump of a tree. But the rod just slowly pulled down to the left. Fucking sure. And all of a sudden, there it was, laying on the surface. Fucking hell. Right. So now I've got to get the net out. And I always find it easier in a boat to sit down and net them. I see people standing up. You're at 45 degrees. If you sit down... You can get the net further because you're shipping out like a roach pole. And if it was, it was stuck to the boat, frosty. When I pushed it out, it felt like one million percent there was a hole in that net. It was such a ripping sound. And I just remember thinking, right, whatever you've got to do, you've got to deal with it. That's happened. So out it's gone. Eventually, it's come over the front of the net. Forget all that, get the head to the block. There was too much carp the other side of the string still. So I had to get the head about a foot in front of the block. And the only time I've ever done it, I then threw the rod down and like scooped him in that way bundled it in there really and when someone said what it was like so it was because it was frozen it's like trying to net a hippo on a tennis racket That's exactly what it was like anyway i looked at this dinosaur in the net and i remember i never swore anything like that nigel was out there black any size nigel i said i can't even tell you how big it is i have no clue but you won't believe your eyes when you see what's in this net so we've slowly got back. It's probably a five-minute boat journey. I just kept looking over the side. This feels like an hour. But what an hour. I mean. At the moment I put it in the net, it was absolutely shivering, freezing cold. That's when the, like, the adrenaline's taking over anyway. There he is. Got it up the bank. Did the necessaries. 94 pounds. Do me a favour. 94. 94. Can't be. Anyway, we put it in the old... Uh, uh, sling, slid it out there, calmed down, right. Alan Danau's next door, well-known Belgian angler, legend. So, right, Nigel, you keep an eye on that. Just while it gets dark, I'll walk up and see how I'll let him know. So, 200 yards up the bank, strolled down and said, all right, Al, he's asleep, zipped up door a lot. Hello, mate, yeah? Yeah, I had one. Oh, good, mate. How big? I said, you're getting up, are you? What's that like? I said, uh, yeah, uh, it's a nice one. It's 42.6. So oh, well done, mate. I said, kilos, do the fucking maths. <laughs> 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 anyway, we come, when we got Brooks, he got the, the owner there, Pascal. He came around. It was a you know, tremendous morning. And obviously the best thing ever was to see it swim away. But the funny thing was, right, I'm big on... Um, Achievement, you know, I like to see when a cup final comes along, I love seeing the old ticker tape going up because whoever's won it, whether it's your team or not, it is an achievement, isn't it? If they'd won it. And as I slid that fish back, within three seconds, the heavens opened and there was so much snow fell out the air, it was untrue, and you couldn't see the island. So, as my mate Mowgli said, so that was the, that's that was the carp I was chucking down the ticker tape on you. Yeah. <laughs> it 100% was anyway. It went through that day, you were like, said earlier when you had the record I was, you, you can't quite take it on board whatever of all the, there's a million places in it like that fish could have been and I'm an absolute firm believer that if you try hard enough wherever you're after will find you yeah you can chase it all you like but if your name is on it they find you because why would that fish pick up my ball in the middle of a hundred odd acres where it had, wherever it could have hidden it could have hidden why was that you know after three days that was on it went out on a Saturday evening 
and uh, landed on a Tuesday morning. Anyway, the day went on and on and on. And uh, you know what it's like when you're probably sitting out there, there's a million stars up there, aren't there? It's been, what a day it's been, chilled out. And Nigel's, you know, you like you do, you have that little conversation. I wonder if there's life out there. Well, there must be. Yeah, I wonder if there's anyone carp fishing. I said, possibly. I said, I bet none of them looking out there has ever had a 94 pounder a day. <laughs> Fuck it. <laughs> and that was the end of that, though. So, yeah, it was a moment. But yeah, Brilliant. I was just trying to say, true believe, if, you, if your name's on these fish, you try hard enough for them, put yourself out enough, they will find you in the end. You just got to keep believing, haven't you? Meant to be yeah. on the theatre of dreams, mate. Simple it? as that. Fantastic. Yeah. Look, that, both of those stories deserve a round of applause for a start. <laughs> Captivating <laughs> listening to them. I've got someone to reward me with a bottle of water today. Yeah, yeah. Mouth dry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've like got goosebumps listening to that. It just because <laughs> it, it, you know whatever whatever you're chasing, you know a big fish. A, a big fish to you is a big fish to you, whether it's a twenty pounder or a thirty pounder. If you've not caught a thirty pounder, that's a big fish. Yeah, it's all, it's all relevant to what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, seventies, sixties, fifties, nineties, even. They're, yes, they're huge fish, yeah. but your target is your target, so you'll get that feeling whatever your target is. Absolutely, absolutely superb. Um, let, let's. Let's talk about the magical weapon that is obviously mm. the thing that you need to go out and catch big fish. Because mm. there's obviously a widget that you can get, isn't there? Uh, <laughs> Effort, uh, um, dedication, yeah. hard work, graft. Yeah, it's nothing you can buy. Nope. <laughs> you, nope. You've got to earn it and you've got to get it, you know, uh, through graft and, um, you know, like just like we said earlier, that, that mindset thing. You've got to put yourself through that type of uh, scenario. Cheers, man. Um, yeah, I mean, if there was a if there was a, a magic potion or a magic gadget or Locky. widget or whatever, um, you know, we'd all be we'd all be singing off the same in sheet. We'd all be on the same level playing field, and um, unfortunately, it's simply not the case. Um, yeah, we can all use uh, great bait and good solid tackle um, that we've got available these days and, and have had for a number of years. Um, to put things in our favour, um, but you've got to have uh, an element of watercraft. You've got to have an element mm. of um, drive behind you with your fishing. So there's no getting up in the morning like on a morning like this morning, and it's chucking it down with rain, thinking, oh, "I'll go tomorrow." Tomorrow's no good. You've got to take every opportunity and drive through those hard spells. Um, and you know, rack up the, the the knowledge only comes with experience uh, to a certain degree. Um, and um, as Martin said, you know, why did that fish pick up that that particular bait? In that, well, I know that Martin would have put himself in a, a good position and placed his rigs on a good uh, spot and and have good bait and a, and a rig that will catch carp because he's got confidence in what he's Number doing. One. And and confidence yeah. in the rig, and he'll have caught carp on it before. So when he does hook that yeah. fish of a lifetime, he knows that by hook or by crook, unless something goes drastically wrong, that's going in the net. Yeah. You can't always um, account for uh, a, a giant, a, a, a big problem, you know, a big weed bed or a big snag. You can do your best to avert that disaster, mm. but sometimes things go wrong. And with big carp fishing, you have to accept that things will on that journey things will go wrong your motor will break down on the way to the lake the weather will be against you someone will be in the area that you want to fish you can't have it all your own way we all understand that but it's the people that have got that don't give up that that generally get to the point where they've got what they want in the net at the end of the day and that 
it takes a yeah, bit yeah. of uh, you know it takes You've got a to bit be confident and the definitely. confidence takes a long while to build up you know there's yeah the easiest way I can put, put that is if you um, you're fishing easier late it's getting a bit bit of action and whatnot where you'd expect some takes that's enough confidence to know that your rig's working your bait's working then when you go to a lake with a bit of a tougher challenge in it then you haven't got that to worry about because you know well it works everywhere else so why wouldn't it work mm. here mm. and that then leaves you just chasing the big one mm. and, until it finds you yeah uh, in a nutshell well, it's a bit harder than that but that's kind of the basics of it yeah. yeah I always tell the youngsters like you know that, that are setting off on that journey just I think one of the main things that, that gets lost in this in, in the translation of all this is just enjoy yourself as well mm. you know you've got you've got to want to be there you've got to want to catch that carp but you've got to have a good laugh along the way and enjoy it with your mates yeah, yeah. and everything because if you lose the enjoyment then then you're going to get to the point where you're like well actually I don't fancy it this week mm. whereas if you're enjoying it and you've got the motivation and confidence um, then it all becomes a, a big melting pot of loveliness and then yeah, you want to go sure. carp fishing all the time because yeah, yeah. it's a great thing to do so it, uh, yeah. it, I think the effort especially like times like now you know mm. for the next six weeks in particular that's mm. when the effort level's got to be ramped up even more isn't it there are periods where mm. you've got to make yeah at least 99% effort all the time, but there are times we need 110% effort. And, you know, if you've, if you've yeah. got that target. The spring is definitely, you know, like, you know, if I hadn't have been here today, I, yeah. I drove back from Reading yesterday, um, but I'd have still been sat there, yeah. you know, with, with, luckily with the blessing of my missus. Yeah. <laughs> she knows. It's the unknown, isn't it? <laughs> Having the, the big fish a lot of time, I haven't been out through the winter time, it's what will they be with maybe a, f a few extra pounds of spawn in them or whatever, you know, it's just the, the first time out, first time capture. Yeah. Um, but the weather, we're all in the lap of that, aren't we? Yeah. We are, like got, last weekend, I had my shirt off. This weekend, I was sitting there last well, Thursday night with every bit freezing. of warm winter clothes yeah. I had on, with a water bottle on the bottom of my bed. <laughs> yeah. just, just got back from Hungary. Yeah. Uh, it was 22 degrees for 10 days a week before we got there, and when we got there, it was minus four and it snowed. Really? There you go. Lovely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely yeah. fantastic. We're all at the mercy so, of the weather. Still got to be there. I'll pack the spring <laughs> kit just in case. That's mm. Lovely, it's freezing. <laughs> um, look, a couple of, couple of quick questions now. We've talked mm. about weather. Weather is vitally important. Certain weather conditions are better than others. Mm. Um, I'd like to talk about moon phases mm. a little bit, because I don't understand <laughs> moon phases. Do you believe in no, moon I'll just phases? Go fishing that's it yeah okay end of well i mean does anyone understand moon you say you don't i don't think anyone does there's no precise scientific reasoning behind what has happened or what does happen through moon phases at the end of the day if you if you get to fish a friday saturday night you go fishing friday saturday yeah. night if it happens to fall on yeah. a full moon yeah. and the big one comes out great I've caught a lot of big fish that have happened to fall on the full moon phases, but I'd have been there anyway. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a real difficult one, I think. Don't get too wrapped up in all that. Just go um, fishing. Well, I remember yeah. um, when Tim Page was talking about that a few years ago. Crowley, uh, Crowley added yeah. up, worked out, went through all the captures of the last year or two before, and in each quarter of the year, it was like 24% this one, 26 yeah, 25 was, and 20, whatever. It was all really equal. It was, it was, carp, when, when, catching the daytime as well. When, we were, at, when we were at Carp Talk, and with Crow in particular at Carp Talk, over a 12 month period of time, they logged every single catch report that came in to work out whether or not there was any correlation with the moon phase. And there wasn't, like he says, it was 24% all the way through. But there was one thing that was absolutely conclusive more fish come out at weekends. Yeah, well, we were talking about going fishing at weekends. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. so if yeah. there was one thing you find out, 
more fish get caught if you go fishing more. Yeah. Right, see you later. That's it. That's the, that's the lot. <laughs> Everyone's um, obsessed with it these days. Yeah. And you find, especially on some of the big fish waters around the country now, um, leading up to a, a, a new moon or a full moon, literally every swim's gone on the lake. The yep. fish have got nowhere to go. There's baits and rigs everywhere. And that's why the chances of the big getting caught <laughs> suddenly rises massively. Yeah. So, uh, it, you know, the, the correlations are what they are. Me, me and Briggsy have something called a coffee time carp. Okay, uh, I don't know if you believe in this as well, but the coffee time carp is normally a half decent one. Yeah. So you've got bite time, mm. and bite time is when you're going to get your bites. Mm. And, you know, the bite time might be an hour before dark into two hours into dark. It might be two o'clock in the morning. It might be that bit around about dusk. And then you've got that normally crap period between 11 o'clock in the morning and three o'clock in the afternoon, where especially if you're on holiday, that's mm. when you reel in, go for a shower, go mm. to the pub, do whatever. Mm. The amount of times that completely out of the blue there'll be a bite mm. and it's a good one. Yeah, and it seems yeah, to be yeah, the yeah. best one comes out of the blue at the wrong time. Mm. And you know, that's a prime example, isn't mm. it? I'm not mm. leaving the lake during bite time, but actually big bite time can be yeah. any time. No, I'll really leave my rods or winding. That's yeah. it. Very rarely. Yeah. And there's exceptions, but not many. No, I certainly think, um, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a thing whereby um, certainly on some of these um, pay lakes or whatever where people go and they all go for breakfast the same everyone reels in mm. at nine o'clock go yeah, to the calf really or whatever if they if, if all those lines come out of the water you see it on, on the hardest lakes you see it on day ticket waters once all those lines come out the fish start showing over the baited spots yeah. and the one guy that decides to stay yeah. behind or whatever he'll get a bite yeah. um you, you know it, it's been spoken about a lot um certainly recently as well the, those particular periods where people go do you know what we're all going to reel in and go for a look around the lake the lines come in those bigger warier fish will certainly take advantage of that scenario you know without a doubt it's just there's too many examples of it to uh, to not be the, the case well let's let's look at big fish thursday you know because it's <laughs> big fish thursday has become a thing Mm. Because it's been a struggle up until Thursday. Everyone's hanging out for you now. I've got to get one today, otherwise I'm going with nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, at Rainbow Lake, it started at Rainbow Lake Big Fish Thursday, didn't it? Because the amount so, yeah. of big fish that yeah. come out on a Thursday yeah. was crazy. Yeah, it was, yeah. But uh, so, that's one I do think it's just a. Everybody's either lost the will to live yeah. or, or they've yeah. tried yeah. a new spot. Enough. It's just yeah. Yeah, it's your last chance. You know, it's like yeah. anywhere you go uh, on holiday, yeah, you're doing the week. It took you a little while to suss it all out a lot of the time. And by Thursday, that's it. My traps are set and they're staying where they are. Yeah. So maybe that's why it happens. I don't yeah. know. But there's, um, there's, there's definitely something in it. Quite what the reason is, but there's a lot yeah, of big right videos for Thursday. Yeah. Um, well, has anybody got any questions that you'd like to ask these two? We're, we're, we're more or less there now for, uh, for our first show of the morning. It's been absolutely fantastic having you on. Any questions anywhere? I'm going to come up with one. If you were going to go fishing tomorrow for... I'm going to say a big fish, but let's mm. say you're going to catch a 30-pounder. You want mm. to catch a 30-pounder, not you're going to. You want to catch mm. a 30-pounder tomorrow. Mm. What would be your tactics? How are you going to start? What would you do? Because a 30-pound fish is still a big fish. What yeah, would you be yeah. doing? Well, firstly, pick a lake that's definitely got 30-pound fish in it. This is always the most important. If yeah. you want to catch a big one, you've got to go to a go lake that's got are. a big one. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's your number one rule. Secondly, is, is use your right, is look for the fish. Um, you know... Like, Everyone that I speak to, social media or shows or whatever, uh, they ask, how do you do this? It's like the most important thing is location yep. of carp. Uh, you need to be where they are or where they want to feed. Um, even more so in spring, I think, as well. Even more so. they don't move around that much. So yeah, you've got to find them. You've got to find them. You've got to be on the fish to be in with a chance for a big one. And 
you know, to catch a 30 pounder, like the simplest tactics at this time of year will catch almost any carp that swims. And generally speaking, in the spring, once you've got your location right, a little bright pop up, not too much bait. You know, they're not really eating that much at the moment. They're just browsing and looking. Um, and um, yeah, you know, the, the biggest carp in the land get caught on a, a, a pink pop-up at this time of year in, in the right sort of place, shallows by the reed beds, yeah. that type of thing. But that, that's how I'd approach this time of year for a 30 pounder personally, you know. Yeah. Well, I think the best um, knowledge it now is the guys that are on the lake already. And it's not easy to walk around the lake and find them when they're not showing. Or if they're only showing at night and you turn up in the middle of the afternoon, you've got to make an educated guess on that. Mm. So generally, the, most people got a little bit of a network of what's going on. You can call someone who's on the pond already, and plus it's Sunday tomorrow, so they'll be going home. Um, and just find out what's happened and where it's happened. And, you know, it's not a case of jumping into dead man's boots. Yeah. <laughs> if that's where the fish are being caught and they're not moving around too much at the minute, you know, over a few period, a period of a few weeks, there might be one area of the lake, one end... Um, middle or whatever that's producing them don't be scared go in there yeah so the number one thing is do what you were doing that you're confident with start off from that and see what goes but lo local knowledge is the one ask questions if they're not Martin, really showing ask something. questions yeah 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 <laughs> local knowledge goes an awful long way yeah fantastic that's all we've got time for gentlemen thank you ever so much yeah thanks um, for listening ladies and martin Locke and os holness brilliant Next up, well, it's me and it's always tricky introducing yourself, but obviously I spend a lot of time underwater. And what we're going to do now is we're going to look at a few myths, bust them and look at a few things that are going to make sure that you catch more carp with a bit of underwater knowledge. Here we go. Well, uh, we're off again. Another show down here at Outlaw Pro. Been a brilliant day so far. Hope you've all enjoyed it. And we're going to be looking at a few things underwater. Uh, this is going to be a questions and answers as well as a little bit of a discussion from me. Hello there. Uh, so if there is anything that you want to know when I'm talking, just shout out at any stage, any questions at all of what you're seeing, or if you've got anything going through your mind that you think, you know what, I'd like to know a bit more about that, do let me know. So let's crack on. Understanding underwater, there's a lot goes on below the surface. Sometimes it can be a little bit of a maze and a minefield, but the key thing is starting to be as simple as you possibly can. If you start at the beginning and work your way to the end, that's the best way of doing things. A few fish, first and foremost. So, we'll get some fish just to show that I can catch the odd one or two. That is my first double in 1987. There's a 20-pounder that I think was in 1989. That's a 30-pounder. That's one of the sought-after Con Valley Commons. Uh, there's a 40-pounder. Again, another real sought-after one. Uh, 50 pounder, that's called the Ace of Spades, real black cracking looking fish. Uh, there's a 60, uh, that was from Cassian, that's called Bernadette, that was one of the most sought after fish in the world at the time. There's a 75 pounder, uh, that's me PB. Uh, and just to complete the set, there's a 70 pound common as well. Uh, so there's a few fish. Right, we can catch them. That's it, no more fish. This isn't about, look at me with a big fish, this is about this now understanding underwater now i started diving probably 25 years ago uh, and everybody likes to dive in clear water warm water have a look at beautiful colored fish not for me i like to grub around on the bottom of muddy lakes trying to work out how rigs work and more recently looking at how fish behave uh, i've had some quite interesting experiences underwater uh, this obviously isn't um, this isn't fresh water this is salt water 
And when that thing's coming at you from around the rocks, and then it smiles, it's quite interesting. Uh, I can tell you that is probably from here to the telly in front of me. Uh, so very, very interesting, but um, fortunately I'm still here to tell the tale. So, one of the most important things, if you want to improve yourself as an angler, one of the most important things is understanding the carp and its environment. If you look at any military strategist, they need to know the lie of the land and who they're going into battle with before you come up with your tactics. A lot of people think, right, I'm going to fish a PVA bag, but you might be doing that for the wrong reasons. If you understand the battleground and also what you're trying to achieve, you'll fish a lot better. So, audience participation time. Let's understand the aquatic environment first and foremost. This is Horseshoe Lake, very clear water. I am probably five yards out in front of the peg. Eyes at water level. Obviously there's a person stood there with his hands in the air. When I go underwater, do you think I can see him? Let's have a show of hands. Who thinks that I can see him? Who thinks I can't see him? That's a yes or a no answer, and four or five people haven't answered either of those yet. There isn't a third option. There isn't a third option. It's either yes, I can see him, or no, I can't see him. So, can I see him? No. Bit of ripple on the surface. Now, we all know from surface fishing, when there's a bit of ripple on it, it's great. The fish can't see it. When that surface is disrupted, it's very hard to see out. If you look really carefully, you can just about see a bit of disruption on the hands. So when there's ripple on the water, it's a lot easier getting close to fish. What happens when it's clear? See, completely different. That's not the same place. That's a different place. But you can see when someone's silhouetted and there's no ripple on the water, that person stands out like a sore thumb. Interestingly now, let's think about another military tactic, camouflage and concealment. If you want to blend into something, you camouflage yourself against it. If you want to stand out, you go a different colour. White sky, grey sky, dark person silhouetted. Camouflage is brilliant, as in camo clothing, real tree, etc, etc, green. It's great when you've got trees behind you, but when you've got sky behind you, actually the noddy that's walking around in a white t-shirt is probably more camouflaged than you are because he's blending in with the sky. And if you think nature has the answer to everything, one of the most successful waterside predators is a heron. If they are seen, they don't eat. So they have to camouflage themselves up a little bit. And if you think in the UK, they're gray and white to match the clouds above. So just, if you want to blend in, just think about uh, what's behind you. And that's a prime example of it. Uh, the other thing now to understand is what the bottom looks like. Uh, interesting dive, this one, I was in uh, a lake called Kingsbury Water Park in Birmingham. Loads of fish coming around and I wrote my name in the mud. Uh, and a week later, the fish had rubbed it out. So where they're coming in and looking for clay, particularly at this time of year, clay is a really, really good source of finding where the fish are. They like to be up in the water, but they're always rooting around for clay. So if you find clay on your lead, it's well worth looking for. The other thing we all like to look for is bloodworm. And this is a picture of Linear, the bottom of Linear. You can see these little craters. Looks a little bit like the moon. Little craters on there. This is where bloodworm live in the bottom. So as and when the fish are swimming over the top of it, a lot of the time there will be bloodworms sticking out and just waving around through that. But as soon as there's any movement in the water, bang, they're gone. They go straight back into their little rabbit holes. Uh, 
So finding bloodworm is obviously really interesting. This is a different coloured silt. This is local to here. This is in Cleverly Mere. So you notice the first one was red clay. Linear was almost like a golden colour. This is down in Essex. This is Cleverly. It's slightly more orangey colour. People, well, tackle companies bring out so many products where you've got weedy green, gravelly brown and silty black. And actually, none of the silt I see is black. The majority of the time, the silt is a different colour. So if you want to know what colour the silt is in your area, have a look at the local stone. So taking Cotswolds as a prime example, Cotswold stone is yellowy gold. So if you want to camouflage your hook link to that, then use a yellowy golden one. If you want to use, uh, if you're in like Birmingham with that other one, a brown one would be better. Obviously down in Essex, we need to suntan it. Uh, so we've got to have a bit of orange in it. Prime example. So once again, there's the silt. This is the stuff that lands on the top. And then the black stuff, which is what we see when we walk in the edge, that is where you're going into the dead silt underneath and the detritus is coming up. So when it goes cloudy black, it's because we're going into this. Now, this stuff isn't particularly nice. There's no oxygen in this. That's why it's black. It's all rotting down. There's oxygen in the surface layers. That's called anaerobic. That's aerobic, primarily because there's air in that bit and there's not in the other. And the worms, the blood worm, live a lot of the time just on the edge of it. They'll go in there, they like the dead detritus and every now and again they'll come in the surface bit. But if you look carefully there, you'll see a bit of bloodworm. So normally that bloodworm is within three, four inches of the surface. It's not normally a lot deeper than that. So if you've got really, really deep silt, the fish aren't diving right into the bottom of it. They're just going into the top and picking it up. So something to be aware of if you're fishing over silt. Uh, linear fisheries again, this is a really nice cleaned sandy patch. When I swim underwater, it's a little bit like um, walking through a forest. If, you, if you're careful, you can see where the animals are moving through. You can see which way the grass is bent. You can see how high the grass is bent. So for example, a badger walking through grass is going to leave a very, very different trail to a deer walking through grass. And it's exactly the same underwater. They leave little signs everywhere. So this is a prime example of a feeding spot where they're going down to get into the clay. Underneath that clay will be a little bit of gravel, but that's a lovely polished spot. So this is the sort of thing that you're looking for. Now that would be a little indentation, maybe six inches if you're going laterally at it. But if you can find something like that, again, it's clearly a feeding spot. It's not that big. So being able to be absolutely accurate with your casting to be able to find that spot time and time again that's how you're going to get bites off the same spot we'll have a little swim oh excuse me don't know what's happening there where are we that one let's just play this little bit of video now this is a prime example of accuracy so you've got one really nice sandy spot you can see the white bits on it that's gravel and it's also shells so little white dead snails. This is raisebury. But that, that spot was probably about the size of a car bonnet. Elsewhere around it, effectively it's death if you cast into that. Your rig's going to bury in this horrible weed. It's not nice weed. The fish aren't feeding on it at all. There's lots of rubbish everywhere. And that one spot, if you got on it, you got a bite. If you didn't get a bite, or yeah, if you didn't get a bite, the chances are that you went on the spot. So 
I can't express enough how important it is. Even if it takes you 50 casts to get on that spot, make those 50 casts. Because if it's not on there, you're not getting a bite. Not on certain types of rigs anyway, you've got to adapt your rig. But obviously if you're fishing the right rig for that spot, that's exactly where it needs to be. So it's worthwhile making that effort to get on the spot. This to me was a real eye opener as well. Um, just want to talk about noise underwater. We all know about carp being quite spooky. Cast out to them if you don't stop your lead on the way and it hits the water and it makes, you know, that real big banging noise when it goes in. And the, the fish spook off it. And for a while, we all thought that they were spooking off the noise of the lead landing. It's not actually that that they're spooking off, would you believe? They get so used to leads hitting the water. And we've seen from some of the quarter films recently, you know, when they were, they were filming the leads going in, the fish actually aren't that bothered about the lead. What they are bothered about is this. And if you look carefully there, you'll see a bubble trail. It looks like the tail behind a comet. Now, if you cast and hit the clip, it makes a splash on the surface and all of the air is diffused there and it swings back in again nicely. If you cast in and you don't stop it, it dives in really quickly. And then what it does is it leaves a bubble trail. Now you can imagine if you're minding your own business, swimming around the lake and suddenly there's this bang and a flash next door to you. It's actually that that spooks the fish more often, the visual sign of those bubbles flaring up by the side of the carp. And I've been there obviously very close to people casting so I can film it and see it. And it really is very obvious. Now it doesn't last a long time because obviously the bubbles come up to the surface, but it's enough to scare your fish off. So the key thing there is when you're casting out, make sure you hit the clip. And there's a number of reasons why you should hit the clip, but that's the first one. The disturbance it causes is absolutely incredible. Um, Location. We know that location is absolutely vital. If you're not on the carp, you're never going to catch the carp. So finding them is one of the key things that you need to do. And once again, you heard me mention clay earlier. I say that again, this time of year, clay spots are absolutely fantastic for carp. This is in Bundy's pit, uh, 40 odd foot deep. Really interesting fish, but you can see the clay marks on it. At this time of year, what they're doing is they're going to find clay because they scratch on it and they get rid of the parasites that have sat on them through the course of the, uh, the winter. There's also some people say that they like to, um, they like the minerals that are in it. Um, they like all sorts of things with it. For me, I think it's primarily that they're just scratching on it because they just like a scratch. And if they scratch themselves in rocks, they're gonna hurt themselves. They can't scratch themselves against silt. So they're looking for clay to be able to do that. And they really will dig into it. They'll feed on it, but more at the point they scratch on it. And it was really interesting this one as well because we were talking about this fish just before I got in there because it was a 42 pound common that had disappeared and nobody would seen it for ages. And it's quite a distinct fish. There's a, a, a nibble at the top of its tail, if you see there. And they were talking about this common carp that nobody would seen for God knows how long. It was one of those ones that's gone on the missing list. Nobody caught it. I jumped in the water and literally within five minutes of being in the water, it's come up to say hello. And it's just swum up and had a look. Uh, swam around me a couple of times and then decided, uh, decided I'm not interested and it's gone off somewhere else. But it was quite interesting. I came out and said, well, you know that fish you were talking about? I've just seen it and we thought it was dead. And it's not. And it shows how sometimes they can, uh, they can evade capture uh, quite a lot. But clay, this time of year, absolutely fantastic. Um, it's interesting how close I can get to carp sometimes. Whenever I dive, one of the first things that people ask when I come back out again is, did you see any fish? Uh, and the answer is a lot of the time, it depends on the fish. Most of the time I'll see them. 
Sometimes I don't see them, but if I don't see them, it's because they don't want to be seen. So you can see here, we're actually testing zig rigs and I was trying to put the zig in the water and the fish were coming up and trying to nick the zig off me at stages. If anybody's seen the Fox film, uh, where I was filming with Harry Charrington down at um, Thorpe Lee, uh, it's a really interesting film that about how to fish zigs and also colors. So it's worth looking at, it's on YouTube. Uh, but you can see there just how far away, and there's one, two, three, four, there's five fish there. And a lot of the time when I'll go underwater and they hear me, because they hear me before they see me, they'll come up and they just go round and round and round and round. And uh, I remember once I was up at Kingsbury Water Park uh, doing a feature for Carpology and Joe Wright's there. And I said, we'll see some fish because there's one that lives under this tree. So I've got into a place called Pine Pool, swum up around the corner. I'm thinking I'm going to see them any minute. Couldn't find them. I'll see him, I really will see him in a minute. And I just couldn't understand why these fish weren't there because they were always there. Anyway, I've got out and I said to Joe, I'm sorry, I couldn't find any. He said, well, they were all behind you. He was climbed up a tree and literally I'd got in and it was like the Pied Piper. There was about 20 fish swimming on the tail, all following everywhere because they were inquisitive, but they were a little bit wary. And it, it's really interesting, the conditioning of these fish sometimes, like all of them have different characters. If I was to describe fish as an animal, they'd be bullocks in a field. So, you know, you see 20 bullocks in a field, you walk to the field, 15 of them will come and have a look, five of them will stay on the other side of the field, not be interested. Of the 15, there'll be five of them that are cheeky and come up to the front of the gate. And of those five, there's probably one or two that are the kings of the field, and they're the ones that will come up and they're the ones that will sniff you, they'll stand there, they won't move back again. Carp are exactly the same as that. And I do laugh when I hear uber god carp tigers saying all the fish are doing this, all the fish are doing that. They start there in the morning, they swim three times around the barrel, go up to the point and do this, that and the other. They don't. They might think they do that, but they don't because all of these fish are different. They've all got their own individual characteristics. They all do their own thing. They might sit in a group and do the same thing at certain times, but so many times I've seen individual carp have individual characters. That will help us because if you're trying to target a certain type of fish in a certain place, learn about that fish. Don't learn about the rest of them. Learn about that one because it will be a creature of habit. You know, Rob Malin wrote a book years ago called Basil's Bush about this one fish called Basil that lived in Yateley and it lived in the same bush. That's where it was all the time. It might not have fed there, but it lived there. And I've seen that so many times where they'll have an area where they sit, they'll have an area they feed. There's ways that they behave. I think this is a video. Really interesting story. This is Raysbury. And the big one that you've just seen was a fish called Not Mike's Pet there. That's 52 pounds, I think now. And uh, again, look at the clay on him. So spring last year, year before last, uh, had a little bit of a dive. And it was really interesting how he gave himself away so he's within arm's length of me there. He's come up off the bottom. He's had a little look around and uh, he swum with me there. But I was on the surface going over the top of some snags thinking there might be some fish there. And suddenly a bubble appeared. Literally just one bubble popped up off the bottom and floated past. So I thought, oh, that's quite an interesting one. Where's that come from? So I've looked down and I can just see the shape on the bottom, very well camouflaged, because if you look down on carp, they look like the bottom. 
So I've looked down and literally as I'm looking down again, crystal clear water, he's farted. And another bubble come popping out, but it came from the back end rather than the front end. So it's just, just a funny story. So, you know, the way that you find Mike's pet in, uh, in Raysbury is just look for the fart lines. So uh, yes, there we go. Um, bait and experiments, a couple of little points. Uh, one of the questions that I used to get asked a lot was how long does a pop-up pop-up uh, and also, uh, you know, will it stay up in 10 foot, 15 foot? You know, how, how does it work? How do pop-ups work? Basically, a pop-up will stay popped up until it's either saturated with water and the air's gone out of it or alternatively the, the air pressure above it, the water pressure and the air pressure combined take the air out of it. So we'll give an example. This is what happens when you put your bait underwater. This is a bottle at the surface, that standard bottle full of air. And then when I go down to 10 meters, so the next picture will be 30 feet, that's what happens to it. It gets crushed. So it's not water pressure pushing down. It's literally like a bear hug. Everything hugs it or the pressure hugs it and it squeezes the air out of it. So the deeper you're fishing, the more buoyant your pop-up needs to be to be able to stay popped up. It's important, particularly if you're critically balancing your bait because obviously you want to have a nice critical balance bait. What you don't want is it to get down to the deck and it's a lie on the bottom. So be aware that if you're critically balancing your bait in the margins, but you're fishing in 25 foot of water, the chances are it's probably going to be an on the deck bait down there rather than a pop-up. Uh, but the long and short of it is that most pop-ups are pretty good now, especially the, you know, the more modern ones that have got glass particles in it. They're, uh, they're half decent. Um, maggots, let's bust a myth about maggots. If you're fishing maggots, the best place to fish them is over silt rather than under gravel or on gravel, because as soon as they're on gravel, they basically crawl into the cracks and into the stones, down under those stones, and as a result, you lose sight of them. They don't burrow into the silt. A lot of people think that if you put maggots on silt, it will just burrow into it. They don't. I've never, ever seen it. Doesn't matter how soft the silt is, they don't burrow into it. What you can see over the top there is where fish have been in and fed and they've kicked up silt and that dust has then settled on top of maggots again. So that's the only way that the maggot will go underneath. The other thing is that when you let them go, they don't crawl miles. They'll probably go bin lid size most. If you're fishing a PVA bag, they'll probably go to a bin lid size at absolute maximum. And then they basically run out of air. So you know what happens when you seal maggots in a bag, they run out of air. They don't die, they just go dormant. And that's basically what happens with these things as well. They'll crawl out from a bag to about a bin lid and then that's about it. But they definitely don't burrow in the silt. Again, that was a bag. So you can see the pink pop up there. That was a bag, obviously nothing's fed on it, but something's fed in the area because you can see all the dust all over the top. Another tip then with that, red maggots really stand out underwater. These are reds, but because they've been feeding in the area, the dust has gone up, settled back down and the visual attraction has now gone from that bait. So, Little and often topping maggots up now and again is much better than putting a big pile in and sitting on it because when they do come in and feed, they're just covering back up again. Again, similar sort of thing there. You can see how far they've crawled off. That was a solid bag of maggots. I like fishing a nice pink bait over the top of it. We come on to a method now that um, is one of the most deadly methods at any time of year, but particularly in spring, and that's zig rigs. Let's have a show of hands. Who regularly fishes zig rigs? Three. So not so many people fish them. It's, it takes a lot of confidence to be able to fish a zig rig because it's 
Why would a fish take a bit of flip-flop, cast out in the water with no food, no smell, nothing like that on it? And the answer is tadpoles, prime example. You know, this time of year, they're feeding on tadpoles. More importantly, this. Now, this picture here, I might not look an awful lot, but I'm probably as proud of this picture as I am of any other picture I've ever taken. Because if you search on Google Images, Getty Images, all of the, the, the photography agencies anywhere, there aren't any of these pictures anywhere at all. This is an emerging caddis nymph. So basically they crawl around on the bottom and then when they reach maturity, they hatch out the bottom out of their shell, get up to the surface. When they get to the surface, open the wings, fly off, live their life above water rather than below water. There aren't any pictures of this that I know of, of one actually emerging through the water. There may be now, it's a few years ago when I took this one, but basically this is what the fish are feeding for on a hatch. So when you hear a hatch, this is what you're seeing. So caddis coming out of it, shooting up the top. Now, this picture and some clever thinking from a guy called Lewis Porter at Fox spawned something that if you zig fish, we all use, and that's the zigger liner. Because we were looking, I was working with Fox at the time, and we were looking at this photograph. Again, really hard photograph to take. Bearing in mind, I'm mid-water, my feet aren't anchored. I'm trying to take a macro shot of something that's moving in the opposite direction to me, that far in front of my face. Really hard pick to get. But we looked at this and thought, that looks like a liner liner straight away. So this is what the fish are feeding on. We tried to make a floating liner liner at Fox, and obviously we couldn't because you need a bit more buoyancy in it. So Lewis came up with the idea of making a saddle on it sticking a bit of foam in it and turning it into the zigger liner that we all see. So that is where that concept came from. And when the fish are swimming around midwater, this is what they're looking for. So again, think about your zig rig fishing. What you're doing is you're matching the hatch, even though it might look completely unnatural, especially if it's pink or red. But this is exactly what the fish are looking for in spring. They're swimming around midwater and they love to eat this. That's basically what the creatures look like. Um, I do have to smile at some of the gadgets that have come out as well. Uh, forgive me, but um, that's a, a fly of some sort that's on the surface. But I've seen all sorts of bugs and, and imitation things underwater, spiders. I've spent 25 years underwater. I've never seen a spider swimming. I've seen them on the surface, but never swimming. I've never seen a fly below the surface. I've seen them on the top. So quite why they're trying to match the hatch with something that doesn't live underwater. You know, things that live underwater have got tails and things that live in the air have got wings. Uh, so matching the hatch with something that's got a wing underwater doesn't work for me. But uh, yeah, that's, um, that's what we're looking at. And there you can see, you know, from a distance, what a zigger liner looks like, black foam. I love the fact that the way that it sits close to the surface as well, even the glint of the hook almost looks like the air bubble that that has because what they do is they take one last breath of air on the bottom, puff their lungs up, blow it out through the mouth, and that's how they rise to the surface, by blowing that air bubble out and rising up to the top. So, uh, yeah, that's a little bit of history about the Ziggler liner and how it came about. Um, that's obviously what it looks like side on. And we'll talk about colour a little bit later. But again, black, little lesson about fish. Fish have got the same sort of vision as us. People always talk about, you know, how can fish see, what do they see, etc. Fish have got the same vision as us, but they've also got polarizing lenses in their eyes already. 
The reason they've got that is it makes it possible for them to see laterally and focus. Now, if you're in fog, looking laterally, you can't focus on anything because there isn't anything to focus on. Fish are exactly the same. They're constantly looking laterally. So as soon as there's an edge, they can pick it up really well. And that's why black zigs work so well underwater because there's a really sharp defined edge and fish can see them a lot more. If that was yellow, they'd still see it, but it wouldn't be as visible as a hard standout edge that's black. So there's a yellow one. Um, again, it's not a zig aligner, it's a different type, but normally I'll fish a yellow zig if I'm spotting slop or corn over the top of it. And once again, we're matching the hatch with that. So the yellow is going down through the water because it's matching what that hatch is. You see there, that's a black one. And as soon as you put cloud in the water, it makes it slightly more difficult for the fish to see it. But the yellow stands out a little bit more. So yellow will jump out of cloud and black is much, much better in crystal clear water. So if you haven't zig fished, I'd suggest you try it. Um, apply the rule of thirds. So rule of thirds, top third, middle third, bottom third. The majority of the time, the fish are around about the bottom of the top third or the top of the middle third. So that means if it's 12 foot deep, eight foot plus is a great place to start. So eight to 10 foot, the sunnier it is, the higher up. But then if it gets cold or it's choppy or at night, they might drop down a little bit. But eight, eight to 11 foot, I would say, would be the place to be. Remember also with zigs, that when the fish are swimming around, you want to be either in front of the face or above them. You'd never want to be below them because their eyes are on the side of the head, normally looking up. They can look down a little bit, but they don't see an awful lot down there, whereas they see a lot in front of them and above them. So always fish above with a zig. If you're thinking, I think they're at six foot, then that's, you think the fish are at six foot, then the best place to put your zig is seven foot, just above where they are, even eight foot, so they can see it in front of them in that sort of angle directly in front of them. Right, rigs. Um, if you were to ask 10 of the best carp anglers in the world what their favorite rig was, they'd all give you a different answer. So there isn't a magic rig. Rig's gotta be efficient, it's gotta be sharp, and it's got to work for what you're doing. So a pop-up rig is very different to a bottom bait rig, is very different to a PVA bag rig, is very different to a surface bait. Uh, so the key thing is presenting it very, very well. Make sure that it's presented right. Let's make sure there's no tangles. And here is a prime example of a tangle. Show of hands again, has anybody ever reeled in, and be honest now, has anybody ever reeled in where the line is wrapped once around either the lead clip or the lead? Now I'm going to do it because it happens so often. The reason it's done that is because you didn't hit the clip on the way in. And it happens so often, I can't tell you how often it happens. Uh, I'm ashamed to say this is my rig. I got it wrong. This was in early stages before I tested this lots of time. This is on the St. Lawrence in Canada. It's very, very brutal stuff. So that is 80 pound Quicksilver as my supple section. That's 100 pound nylon, real stiff and that's 35 pound braid. So, you know, that is shark hauling kit and it still tangles. So obviously it's a snowman rig, but it still tangles. And the reason it tangled is because I didn't hit the clip. When the lead's flying through the air, the bait is following behind it, but the minute that it hits the water, the lead slows down momentarily as it hits the surface of the water, 
but the line carries on in a little bit of a bow. And then when the lead carries on speeding up, it pulls it up. So just for a split second, your main line does that. And the second that it's done that, it's grabbed the hook link. I've seen it so many times. I'd say if you don't hit the clip, 90% of the time you're in a tangle. 90%. That's me. Uh, that is, uh, that's a pop-up rig. Anti-tangle tubing. Decent pop-up. Supple hook link material. Once again, exactly the same thing. It's wrapped back up. That's not me, that's someone else. Uh, very experienced angler. Uh, Dennis McFetrick, actually, who is, without any shadow of a doubt, one of the most thinking minds. Even he didn't realise what was happening with it, because when you reel back in again, what happens is it straightens itself out, so you don't know. You still get a pick-up off it, but you're not actually getting the presentation that you thought you were going to get. So that's a pop-up rig. Uh, this one, that's a bog standard bottom bait rig. So we've seen a snowman, a pop-up, and a bottom bait rig. This is Simon Crow's rig. He's chucked it back out, didn't hit the clip. The minute that I've seen him not hit the clip, I think it's tangled. Lo and behold, exactly the same thing has happened. And it's always that same thing, it twists. And when you reel back in, it straightens itself out again. So always hit the clip, always, for a number of reasons. One, do you remember the bobbles earlier? Not spooking the fish as much. Two, presentation is going to be right. Three, if you're hitting the clip and you're feeling it down, you can feel what the bottom's like. If it hit, lands with a donk, you know you're on hard. If it lands with a, a thud, it's soft. If it's squidgy, it might go into silt, or sometimes you don't feel it at all. And if you don't feel it at all, the chances are it's weed. Okay, but either way, it's really important to hit the clip and feel the lead down. There's a few things that people think they can do to avoid tangles. Uh, one of them is foam, which is great. It's Tom Maker's rig. Bottom bait, piece of corn on the end of it, stuck a foamy on that. Um, and when we test our rigs, what we do is we look at them, we think, yeah, that's great, and we take them and we put them in the margins, and then we straighten it along and we look at it and go, oh yeah, that's good. That's, that's mega. That's absolutely perfect. And then we leather it out 100 yards into the pond, don't hit the clip, and it lands on the deck in a big pile, either like the last one, or prime example again, a bit of foam. And what we think is going to happen is the foam is going to hold it up and then the rig is going to fall slightly to the side and it's going to be laid out lovely. And that doesn't happen because gravity means that the lead is the heaviest thing, so that falls first, and the bait is held up behind it. And then as soon as that foam disappears, gravity takes place and it drops straight down. So it lands on your lead, almost always. If you want it to push away from your lead, you've got to change your hook link material. You've also got to change the buoyancy of the bait. So don't for one minute think that it's kicking away. Uh, stringer, again, stops tangles, but you know what, makes it even heavier. So it's gonna land by the side of the lead. Not saying you're not gonna catch on that, but right by the side of the lead, obviously it stands out a little bit more, particularly if it's a hard bottom. This is Abbey Lakes sandy bottom uh, so the lead's not sinking into anything at all literally it's landing with a donk i think you can yeah you can just see the the, the pvas dissolving on there as well i'm not sure which one the hook bait is on that one but uh, anyway either way they all fall down nice and level single bait stiff hook link once again nice stiff hook link combi rig 
broken down there. You'd think that's going to be lovely. What's going to happen? It's going to kick and it's going to fall away. No, it's not. Literally, it's not. It's got to be a balanced bait. Um, don't know where Sharpie is. Uh, not going to embarrass him because we've all done it. Uh, but this is Nigel Sharp's rig. Dived with Sharpie on Farlow's a few years ago. £35 amnesia pop-up. And once again, the idea is he likes to overweight his pop-up so he can get it sitting and anchored to the deck. So he's using £35 amnesia to try and kick it away. Not happening. Once again, the downforce created by that weight anchoring it down is greater than the side force created by pushing that out. Once again, not saying you're not going to get a bite on it. You still will. Look how many fish Sharpie catches. Look how many fish Crowy catches. Look how many fish Derek McFetrick catches. Still going to get bites on it, but actually, if you want your presentation laying out a little bit, that's got to be balanced. Or if you want it overweighted, there should be some putty on the middle and that'll take the McDonald's arch down. You know, you lay that arch down and suddenly the presentation looks so much better. And it's something as tiny as that that might be the difference with a wary carp. You imagine a big wary one coming up to this and thinking, oh, I can see the bait, then coming up and thinking, actually, no, I'll, I'll leave that. Whereas one tiny little bit of tungsten putty that laid that arch down, that might be the difference between getting that bite or not getting the bite. Um, sometimes you're just downright unlucky. That's a really stiff hook link material there uh, and a balanced meshed bait that's got a cork ball in it. And you can see as it's fallen, the hook link's actually fallen on top of the boilie. So, you know, how's your luck with that? Not saying you wouldn't get a bite on it again, but if the fish was to come and suck it from here, it's coming behind the hook link. There is a moral to this in a minute. Another one there. Um, brand new rig, just gone in, absolutely fantastic. I've taken ages getting my rigs sorted out. Nice sharp hook on it, I cast it out. Hook points on a stone. Reel it back in again, hook points turned. One cast, got to start again. Real pain in the backside. Really important, every time you reel in, just check your hook point. Because that could be one cast. If I didn't check the hook point, that's come back in again, that's dead, but I don't realise it. So every single time you reel in, make sure you check that hook point. And the moral of the other ones, again, is recast. If you think that you should have had a bite and you haven't had one, then it's worth a recast because that might have happened or that might have happened or any one of these weird things that never happened might happen because Sod's Law says it's going to happen. So if you think you should have had a bite and you, should, you haven't had one yet, just recast it because there could be any little reason uh, that's causing you not to get that bite. Um, this is something that's, uh, that's quite interesting as well. I like that presentation where I've got double putty on it. And when I putty down, I putty a heavy bit here and a lighter bit there because I like to lay it down like that. You know, a lot of people do it the other way around. They like the heavy bit there and that bit there. So it drops and then lays over. But I quite like to lay it down. There might be times where you do it the other way if you want a bit more movement in the rig. But I just think laying it down like that is ideal because there's enough movement there for a fish to come in and be able to pick it up. And it's just, you know, lovely and I was going to say disguised, but actually the cock up I've made there is I've used weedy green on a sandy bottom. So you can see the hook link. Uh, so if it was clear, it'd be lovely. But um, interestingly as well, 
where you see these marks here, this is shallow water. I've just taken this in, it's probably three foot, four foot in the edge just to get the shot. But where you see anybody taking a photograph and there's this lines on, this is where there's ripple on the surface and the sunlight is hitting the water. And normally when the sunlight hits the water, if it was glass flat, it would just go through and you wouldn't see anything. But because the surface is rippling like that, basically the light is moving. So the line of light that comes in moves like so. And you get these lines on the bottom. I call it strobing. And it's really important. It's one of the reasons actually, because I took some shots a long, long time ago now. And it was when we started tungsten coating hooks, making them gray and anti-glint because where you just add the polished shiny hooks, it flashed and it flared. And every time this light goes over it, you imagine that's traveling, that line's traveling. Every time it goes over there, it makes it flash. So if you're fishing shallow water, giving some Team England secrets away now, if you're fishing shallow water, just be wary if you're using a really bright bait, because if there's a bit of ripple on the surface, a bright bait in shallow water flashes on and off when the light hits it and off, on, off, on, off. And the faster the ripples are, the quicker it flashes. Now, sometimes that can be an advantage because it's drawing the fish's eye to it. Sometimes it can work the other way and it's up to you guys and your circumstances to work out whether or not it's a benefit or a detriment. But if it's a detriment, it's a problem. If it's a benefit, it's great. Uh, balancing hook baits. Uh, you've seen why. It's just a little reminder that if you are going to balance your hook baits, make sure that you're doing it properly. Make sure you're checking it. Don't just chuck it in the edge and look at it from above. Go down and see what it's like. Better still get a balancing bucket so you can see how it drops down. Bear in mind that if you're fishing deep, and by deep I'd say anything over 15 feet, that's when pressure comes in a little bit more and will cause it to drop down a little bit. But all these little technical differences, I think, do make uh, a difference. A uh, couple of myths. I'm using a piece of plastic corn to negate the weight of the boilie. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Loads of people say they're going to do that. They're going to put a piece of plastic corn on. It's going to negate the weight of the boilie. Absolutely doesn't. You can see here that we did a little test that it took five pieces of buoyant corn to lift the boilie off the deck, but still have the hook on the bottom. So if you want to negate the weight of the boilie, it's a chain of six pieces of, of corn to be able to lift it. What you might do with two pieces is negate the weight of the hook as opposed to the boilie. So think about what you want to achieve. If you want to make a bog standard bottom bait, so you're matching the hatch, if you want to make that more buoyant, to be honest, buoyant corn isn't the one. You're much better using foam that's something, or, or better still corking it out and putting some cork in there. But just sticking one piece of corn on the end, all that does is it acts as a nice little sight bob. It doesn't do anything. It won't, won't even register on the hook. Um, I'm not quite conventional with rigs. Uh, you know, I, I see loads of stuff on, on YouTube about rigs and I see loads of stuff that rig manufacturers are coming up on rigs now they should sit and what they should do. Um, I'm not quite conventional on them. I quite like my rig sitting like this. Um, sometimes, if that's more supple, sometimes I'll even drop the hair right down to the eye. So it's almost in a V, so the hook is sat on the bottom and this is coming up off the eye. It looks absolutely horrendous. You look at it and go, that's, that's not a rig magazine shot. It is terrible. But actually, if you think about rig mechanics, when a fish sucks the bait in, this is nice and balanced. When the fish sucks the bait in, it's going in. When it tries to blow it out, with the hair coming off the eye, 
And this is where the D-rig comes in now. And also um, Paul Bacon's rig, I don't know if you've seen that, I can't remember what he calls it, but the lad who's been fishing at um, Grenville and catching so many big fish, he's actually extended his hair all the way down to there. So it slides down and it's pulling there. Where you get the rig, when a fish tries to blow the rig out, when you get it pulling on the bend of the hook, it's trying to pull the hook that way out the fish's mouth, which it can do. Whereas if it's coming off the eye, when it blows it out, it goes all the way down and it's pulling on the eye. So it's either going to pull it that way or that way. So it's not like that, it's like that or like that. So it's much more of a grappling iron. And I find that my hookups, I've, I've I need some wood. There's some wood. Very rarely lose fish. Can't believe I've said that. I'm going to curse myself now with that. Very, very, very rarely lose fish. When it goes in, most of the time it stays in. I don't lose them very often. Uh, but again, I'm, I, I don't follow the convention. That's quite nice. Different type of bait there. I know this is coming off the top end a little bit more, but that's because that bait is really light. Where you're using a heavy bait, you want it to anchor down off the eye of the hook. Where you're using a light bait, it can be quite different. And again, it's these minor nuances that make a huge difference to how your rig works. But having it balanced there, that's, that's beautifully critical. So it's off the bottom of the line liner and off the point as well. And when that fish come in and suck that in, bang, it's going right to the back of the throat. Uh, corn, another nice one. I'm gonna come on to some colors now. I'm conscious that we're uh, running on time, just different rig presentations there. Uh, look at this one, PVA bags. A lot of people fish a solid PVA bag with a nice bright pop-up uh, over the top of it. That one there, as a prime example. Um, I'll put my hand up, I made a mistake on this one, I forgot to put the putty on. So you can see once again, sits really nice over the top of that pellet. Really visual. Um, unfortunately, I didn't put the, uh, didn't put the, the um, putty and as a result, the braid has come out. Now, even sinking braid floats. I know it says sinking on the label, but actually when you cast it in, there's air trapped in the weave. And as a result, it almost always lifts out. Bear in mind that was actually in a PVA bag. So it's landed on the deck. You'd think it'd be covered by the pellets. What it's actually done is it's worked its way out and it's come and popped up again. But presentation-wise, quite nice. Think about that as an edge as well. A lot of the time, people fish pop-ups over the top but the fish coming through will have seen an awful lot of cherries on top of cakes and conditioning is something that causes them either to avoid being caught or or just be caught you know if it's food going in the same place you can condition them in your favor if they're being caught in a certain method sometimes they'll avoid it and one of the things that I've started doing now is fishing a bottom bait sometimes it's a bright one more often than not it's a match the hatch in a solid PVA bag reason being when that PVA bag is reeled in and that bright pink thing isn't sitting on top of it, it's probably going to look like that. And the amount of solid PVA bags without cherries on that are dotted around the lakes where people have had recasts that fish have been up and fed on and caught on, you know, it's a, it's a really, really good tactic. So if the fish are pressurised in your lake and they've seen a little bit of pressure, try doing a match the hatch PVA bag. Don't put a bright one on there put a bottom bait in there and the amount of times that fish will come in because they'll have eaten them so safely so many times because everybody sticks a pop-up on there uh, and the majority of the time it's a bright one. Um, PVA bags as well, the four by four of rigs, you can chuck it anywhere, they're brilliant, stick it in the weed, it's fine, chuck it in a silt, no problem, completely disagree. 
Um, PVA bags are great on hard bottoms. In weed, don't like them at all. And I understand that you can sort of get a presentation and people say, yeah, but they will feed in the weed. The thing is, if you've got a bait on top of this table that's nice and easy to find, if there's a Mars bar there, then I'm on it like a shot. I can see it, I know where it is, it's got me. If it's hidden under the table, I'm either not going to look for it or don't even know it's there. So whilst I get the fact that if you chuck it into weed or chuck it into heavy silk, they might find it, the chances are that the one that's on top will get eaten a lot quicker. My job with Team England is not to catch fish. We can all do that. Everybody at that level is catching loads of fish. What I've got to do is I've got to work out how, and the lads as well, obviously, is we've got to work out how to catch fish quicker than everyone else. And the way you do that is you make it as attractive and as easy as you possibly can for the fish to be able to find those baits. So, PVA bag in silt. Uh, this is Mark Pitchers and this is Baden Hall. So, uh, it was really interesting watching this because he's chucked it out. It's a really nice solid PVA bag. It looks really cool. It's landed in the silt. The silt was probably eight inches deep. So it's gone in there. After a while, it's just got covered over because that silt has basically sucked it in. Um, forgive me, ladies, but it looked like a tea towel holder when it had been finished with. It had sunk all the way down and you could just about see where it, entered, uh, where it had entered in there. So PVA bags and silt, be very, very careful. If you want to fish one on silt, the best thing to do is balance it. And it's something that people don't do very often, but you can put uh, foam in there, you can put air in there as well. So rather than taking all the air out, put some air in it, put some foam nuggets in there and slowly sink that PVA bag down on top of it. Better still use a parachute. Uh, if you are gonna use it in silt, then this is where smell comes into it because obviously silt is quite smelly. So having a really stinky liquid in there both that will float out of it and also sit in the silt in the area. That works well. And again, I've gone for a real bright one. So if you're fishing bags over silt, don't just fish a straight little bag. You've got to get it as attractive as you possibly can. Um, this is my preferred method for fishing over silt though. And then just getting a load of smell on top of it. Uh, colors, I'm gonna come on to colors in a minute. There we go. Right, colors. Um, I've had this conversation and um, a, 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 I'm not going to say a disagreement, but we have a difference of opinion, myself and, and Chile. Chile's a fantastic angler, caught an awful lot of fish. He doesn't think fish can see colour uh, and he doesn't like using colours. He just likes to use standard food baits. I get it, absolutely. He catches an awful lot of fish all the time where you're creating a feeding situation where you're um, at the same lake all the time, where you've got a session of three, four days, whatever, or three days, just to try and to get that, that bait in there, absolutely. But sometimes for quick hits, I think color is, is really important. And there's been loads of occasions where I've been using one color and flipped to another color, and the second colors work really well. Ask a lure angler about color. Ask a fly angler about color. Fish 100% seeing color. And again, this is, this is the, uh, uh, the, the difference of opinion that myself and Chile have, that he doesn't think fish see in color, he thinks they see in shades. I think they see in colour. Let me give you a prime example. When you look at a roach, it's silvery sheeny on the side. So when you look at it, it's like rippling, shimmering, shimmering water. If you look at it from above, it's got like a greeny tinge on the back of it. So when you're looking down at it, you can hardly see it against the bottom. When you look at it underneath, its belly's white. So why does it have to be three different colours? Let's look at the heron we spoke about earlier. Now herons feed on fish. 
So if fish can't see in colour, it could be a pink flamingo, but it's not. And the reason it's not is because it's camouflaging itself against the sky. Once again, I firmly believe nature has the answer to everything. The perch looks like the perch because it needs to hide. Majority of the time in reeds, as does the pike. You know, look how camouflaged they are. So if they didn't need to be camouflaged because fish couldn't see in colour, they could be any colour at all. But nature has evolved the prey to disguise itself and the predator to disguise itself in a slightly different way. So I believe that fish absolutely can see in colour. They've got the same vision as ours. Again, there's been quite a lot of scientific research done on how fish see, and they see in exactly the same wavelength as us. They see exactly the same colours as us. Their rods are slightly different, but they're the same concept. And they see a little bit into infrared and a little bit into ultraviolet. So they can see the same as us. Hence the reason that certain colours work better than others. Yellow pop-up, prime example. I'm using a yellow pop-up because it stands out. No, it doesn't. In fact, you're using a yellow pop-up for exactly the opposite to that reason. It's actually camouflaged. This is linear again, I think. Um, but you can see yellow is very similar to the golden colour behind it. So if you want something to stand out, what you need to be using is a high-vis pink or a pastel pink, because those two are the ones that stand out. The darker red colour there, again, very good because the edge is very distinct on it. So when you've got coloured water, red stands out very well because it's got a hard edge. Remember what we were talking about of that visibility and fog, you need that hard edge. So that's why a red colour is very easy to see there. Slightly clearer water, especially if it's green, then luminous pink, pastel pink, absolutely fantastic colour. Why don't we use green baits? Well, to be honest, they camouflage themselves down. They're quite similar to the yellow baits. And the yellow pop-up, when you go underwater, this time of year, there's green algae starting to develop. So it's the green end of the spectrum. Sunlight is yellow. The gravel's yellow. The silt's yellowy colour. So a yellow pop-up is actually closer to the bottom than away from it. The other one that's a, a very interesting colour is white, because there's certain times that white works really well. And that's either in very bright conditions or really dull conditions because it's grabbing as much light as it possibly can. So winter is the time for white. Again, grabbing all the light that there is to make it more visible, but everything underwater in the winter dies. So where at the moment it's green, in the winter it's brown and black. Opposite to black, white. Hence the reason that white is a really good colour to have during that time. This is a colour wheel. Gives you a visual representation of what that looks like. So, remember the colours. If we're to look underwater laterally now, not straight down because you're seeing a reflection at the bottom, but if you're to see laterally, if there's a lot of algae in the water, it's here. If there's not too much in the water and it's clear, it's there. So that is what you look like, or the colours that you're looking at underwater. The only time it will just go into there is dusk, when the sun goes that golden orange and you've got orange light going in. And here, first thing in the morning, just before it gets light. But if you think that is your main colour underwater. If you want to stand out, lo and behold, let's go opposite. And we're going purpley pink through to orange. Best colours for standing out. So visibility wise, that's the key. Look at the opposite. Um, obviously fish meals are standard brown, so if you're working on food basis then that works well. But again, if you want something to stand out, that's why pink for me is the best all-round colour. You know, it stands out over weed, it stands out over gravel, 
So the weed is here, the gravel is there, it's going to be silty anyway. There's very little underwater that's actually pink. Uh, how do colours change underwater? This is a colour chart at the surface. So you can see the standard colours there, red, orange, yellow, green, purple and dark blue. And then when we get to 30 metres, that's what it changes to. So people say red goes invisible underwater. No, it doesn't go under, uh, invisible underwater. What it does is it loses its red pigment and it just goes black. Go back again. So you can see there, red goes to black. Orange goes to like a greeny, very dark greeny, horrible color. Uh, yellow isn't far off the same, just not as bright. Green, slightly lighter green. Blue is the same, black is the same. That's because red light is the weakest light and blue light is the strongest light. So blue light will penetrate quicker and further than, than red light. So again, relevant if you're fishing really deep waters because your colour bait will change. You remember the earlier shot that we, we saw where it was in clear water? Let's have a look at it now in coloured water. So this is suspended solid in the water. There's not too much light coming through, but look at that. Pink stands out nicely. Yellow's jumping out a little bit more because it's light and it's grabbing the water. Um, white's actually disappearing in the background because there's not much light around. So it's not dark enough to, for it to jump in the dark, but there's not enough light to light it up. You don't normally get cloudy lakes in the winter. Normally they're gone clear. That's why white stands out more. And in the summer, I find that the only place that I'd use it is in the shallows if it's clear water. Other than that, white's a write-off or on the surface. Look at that though, cloudy water again. Now what we're saying about that hard edge. So if the water's cloudy, especially up in the water, that dark edge works. Uh, yeah, and that was down at 30 odd metres. Uh, we'll go briefly now, very conscious of time. What time have we got? Anyone got? Oh, let's have a look. Blimey, I've been rattling on for nearly an hour. I'm gonna whiz on now to an experiment. The question I'm asked more than anything else is how far beyond the marker float should I cast if I want the bait to land on the deck? Everybody always wants to know that. So we set the experiment up. We've got the post. We're in just under three, foot, uh, three meters of water. So eight foot, nice bog standard style. Uh, and I've got a tape measure on the deck as well. Also did a video uh, with the Fox guys a while ago with Mars are doing exactly the same thing. So if you haven't seen it, have a look at that. But I'm going to say a number of things. First and foremost, we measured loads of different stuff. It's not about how far behind you land, it's about how you cast. So some people cast out, hold a rod up and let it sink. Some people cast, follow it through. Some people cast, throw it over to the side. Some people cast, follow it through. The first thing you need to do is work out what you do, because we all do it slightly differently. Not only that, but you've got to do the same thing consistently, because if you change in any way, there can be a huge difference. So don't worry so much about the swing back, it's more about the cast and feeling that lead down. So we can see here, I can't remember who was what, there's uh, 10 foot, 23 foot, bang on. Uh, oh, sorry, that's cast one. So cast one, cast two, cast three, 10 foot, three foot, bang on. That's three different casts. 5.7 meters away, 6.4 meters away, and 7.5 meters away. It wasn't me casting that one, by the way. Um, so we looked at casting and tapping, which is cast 
and feel the tap. Cast and clip high, cast, clip and drop. Cast, clip with no marker. Uh, various different wraps, braid, etc., etc. We found that there wasn't any correlation to anything at all. It was more down to the point that you've just got to be consistent, work out what you do and complete that as accurately as you can do time and time again. There is a general rule of thumb. Once you know what you do and you can do it consistently, the thing to do would be to add a foot for every five foot of depth. So if it's 15 feet deep, you need to go three foot behind it. If it's 10 foot deep, two foot behind it. But it's more important to cast accurately and consistently. So we'll have a little swim round and uh, I think that's it. This is interesting. This is about 12 foot of water and this is a spawn drop. So spawn drop of boilies. This is a clip from that Fox film. There's some pellet as to what that looked like. From the bank, it looked like Mozzie was getting it absolutely bang on. I've put a marker on the bottom that you'll see in a minute. That's probably, I think it's five foot, these poles. So five foot by five foot by five foot. So what you would think is quite a nice spot. Just wait for this to pull in focus again. There's sweet corn, so you can see how deep the drop is. And all of these from the bank looked like they were bang on, but they were dropping a fair distance apart. So the long and short of it is a foot for every five foot, be as consistent as you can, but most importantly, and I'm gonna come back to the same thing again, feel the lead down, hit the clip, feel the lead down. You're not gonna tangle, you're not gonna do the bubbles, it's gonna lay the rig out, but more importantly, you'll feel your drop. And when you're feeling that drop, you'll know if you're in the right area. Now, we tend to get really tied up on trying to get the bait in the same place as the marker, but the chances are you're not gonna cast down the same hole twice. It's going to be all over the place. So the fact that your rig is three foot or four foot away doesn't matter as long as you've got a right drop. So that's the key thing. There's an awful lot to take in there, forgive me. And it's been an hour of uh, lots of different things to look at. But remember, if you remember nothing else, three things. Number one, hit the clip. Straighten it out. Don't create the mess. Don't create the disturbance. Straighten your rig out. Number two, hit the clip. Feel the lead down, feel what the bottom's like, get your accuracy right. And number three, if you think you should have had a bite and you haven't, recast it. Because there can be any reason. And if you do just those three things, irrespective of the best rig, the best bait, the best everything, if you do those three things, I can guarantee you, your catch rate will go up. That's it. That's a lot of talking. <laughs> Thank you ever so much for your time. And uh, you know where to find me if you need me. Thank you. Our next guest needs no introduction whatsoever. Carp Angler of the Year 2023, he's caught fish over £100 and some of the most sought-after creatures in the UK. Yes, it's Dave Levy. So Frimley Pits, really beautiful place. It's 12 acres, bars, overhanging trees, everything you'd want in a carp lake, lily pads, absolutely beautiful place. It took me about seven years to get on there. I put my name down and I forgot about it and um, eventually... Long story short, I ended up getting on there, but I got a winter ticket. So they give you the winter ticket around October time. And I knew that when I got on there, if I was going to do time in the winter, it'd have to be October, November, because they had a good months. After that, it was only going to get progressively harder. So I went down for my first session and I've set up, and this was my approach. It was hybrid, there's a bit of fish mill there, but at the time it was hybrid, um, sell and a few maggots, a typical, you know, good approach for that time of the year. 
and I've got down to the lake and I thought I'll pick a nice central swim so I can see the lake because always on my first session I want to learn something you know see where the fish are found a gravel bar it's only 12 wraps out everything's quite short there and um, put out 20 spoms 20 large spoms on this bar two rods across it and flick one in the margin about an hour later one of the bailiffs has come round and he said um, did you put out 20 spoms I said I actually put out 21 because one went off the area and he went, well it's a her, she went, we don't fish like that on here. I said, what do you mean? She said, five or six baits crumbled up under a bush and that, that's how it works on here. And I went, all right, thanks for the advice anyway. Look, lovely uh, bait of Lou, right? So about midnight, I'm sat there, this Lou comes walking around the corner in dark, she went, can you do me a photo? I've got a 34 pounder. And uh, caught it over four boilies. And I thought, shit, I filled it in, you know what I mean? <laughs> so. Morning's come round, Lou's come round, all quite cocky. She went, did you have anything? I said, no, I never had one. She said, they don't like baiting here. I said, I had four. So <laughs> the idea being, is like, if you think you're fishing four boilies and five fish come in, then boilies are gone in the first 20 seconds and fish come in. But if you put a mix like I just showed you, it's going to sustain feeding for like maybe an hour or so. And then you can take advantage of like the fish being in the area for longer. The longer you can keep them there, the more you're gonna catch. That was my biggest fish of the session, a fish known as Pink Belly at 39 pound, 12 ounces. And I was chuffed. My first night on the lake, I've had four fish. So I thought, I'm gonna keep going with this method. 20 spoms, and I know as it gets colder, all I'm gonna do is reduce the spoms down to four. And things went really well, and it did get colder. As you can see there, these are, this is behind the island area. Believe it or not, here is 16 foot and it goes up to like three foot. The lake is really up and down. So it's one of them places you really want to make good of the marker rod. So I kept catching, I, kept, I caught really regular, at least one fish a session. When, when you're fishing for a lake, you know, that contains a 50 pound common, every time you go there, you think if I can catch one fish and I'm here all year, at some point I might bump into the one I'm targeting. So I was catching plenty of sort of 28 pound commons. It's a lovely fish, 32 pound. That come out of that really shallow area. On a freezing cold night, I caught it in about three foot of water. And a lot of people, they don't realize, they, they fish the deeper parts of the lake. But when it gets really freezing cold and the lake is all one temperature, I hear it's four degrees on the bottom and it's four degrees at the top. The fish have got no other reason to be anywhere else but shallow water where the sun comes in the daytime. So then I discovered this bush line and um, in this bush line there's a massive load of snags that all hang in the water and one day I was walking up and down this bush line and I just see this grey shape just disappear under these bush bushes and I thought they're getting in here a lot and the sun would come up, it'd be straight onto these loads of snags, penetrating them and the fish just loved it in there. So I started concentrating on this swim which was called the single boards. And I caught pretty regularly, and it was weird. Most of my bites came at about four o'clock in the afternoon, so a lot of the time I felt like I was wasting my time. I'd get there in the morning, and I was literally getting there to get in the swim, because it's quite a popular swim. And then at four o'clock, if I was lucky enough, I'd get a bite. This is what the fish were sitting in. So I'd walk out on this branch, and you can see where people have walked, and you'd look down here, and there would be, like sometimes, massive carp. I saw the bigger in there two or three times. But one day, it was late December, early January, I've walked up here, I got to here, fell, and I fell in the water here, right up to there. <laughs> I was like freezing cold water. 
My nuts were in my neck. <laughs> so yeah, you can see why they'd want to be there. They're totally safe sitting in that area. December, end of December, I caught my first 40 from the lake. And this particular session, I had a massive bonfire going. I was drinking a beer with this guy who had come down to see me. And I, I said, we're not going to catch anything tonight. But this massive bonfire going, the rod's gone. They've had my first 40 pounder out of there. And the fish, I think they call it shoulders. And um, I, I continued to catch out of that swim really regularly. And it shows like I'm fishing three rods, right? I've got one on the snag and I've got two other rods out in the lake on bars in nine foot of water. And in that whole time, probably two months, I never received one bite on them other two rods. Everything was on the tree. So you could say, oh, you was catching them because you was on a good bait. Or you, but the reason I was catching them was because I was in the right location. Because if it was the bait, the other two rods would have been getting bites. Nothing got a bite apart from them rods under that bush. So now we're sort of coming into February time. The fish had sort of vacated the bush a bit. And this area here you're looking at, where these um, stumps are, it's literally this deep. It's very, very shallow. And um, funny enough, the guy that told me the story about fish at night and them lifting their dorsal fins up and down, he's sitting in the room right now, Craig. He told me a story once that he was at a lake and he could see all these marks on the top. And when he put his torch on, he saw a dorsal. He put a zig out and caught a 36-pounder in the snow. That's good memory, isn't it, Craig? So this particular night, I'm sitting here and I thought pike were striking because there's quite a lot of pike in there. There was all, the, all these ripples coming up. And I've turned my head torch on full beam and out in, the, out in this full beam, I just see a massive dorsal fin lift up, really big one, and then drop down. And that story Craig told me, it was in my head. I thought, they're out, they're right near the top of the wall. It was freezing, minus one that night. The water was nine foot. I cast out a marker rod, drew it back to just behind the area where it drops. Where these, so it's, it's about a foot and a half here, here it's nine foot. So I dropped a zig in there at eight and a half foot, eight inches below the surface in my, minus one. It was in there about 20 minutes and I got a bite, 25 pound common. And then the next morning I had another bite. This is what I was using which is interesting really. So I was fishing zigs with maggots on. I never received a bite on a plain zig the whole time I was there. And I did fish it on one rod. The maggots done me the bite every time. And I don't just think it's the movement, I think it's the smell. Fish have got an excellent sense of smell. So that was my first sort of half decent one off the back of that bar, 32 pound miracle to half lin. And um, yeah, I thought I'm on something here. Over the next few weeks, I started to catch quite a few fish on these eggs. And they got bigger. That was a 39 and a half pound common. And that, that was my biggest fish on the zig. But all the time I'm fishing the zigs, the other anglers, they don't miss a thing. You know when you're watching an angler, you can tell by the way he nets a fish that he's on a zig. Every now and then the lead don't come off and it's a nightmare. So a few people clicked on I was on zigs and they know the lake better than me. Some of them have been on there 10 years. They're already on the zigs. But this is the perfect time, right, to be baiting. Because everyone's fishing bits of foam up in the air and I'm spotting every session. Because what I want, I want to establish a bait. And I'm putting it in nice and regularly while no one else is baiting. And that, that's like a, an opportunity to, for you to be the only one feeding a busy lake. And that's what I did. And this is what I was feeding. Again, I dropped the maggots out of the mix. It's starting to warm up. The roach are more active. So I'm just using whole boilies and crumbed and bits and I'm starting to get the fish onto the bait. So this bush line, the one in the winter, this is how it looks now. You can see the snags, lilies, 
It's quite treacherous. I'm fishing it with 18 pound line, size four rooks, 25 pound hook links, and I want to land what I'm, you know, I'm fishing for. And I've walked out on that big tree I showed you one day, and sitting in the water is the big fully. With well, the big fully, it's probably the rarest carp in the lake. He comes out, if you're lucky, once a year, once every other year. And he sat in there with two other fish. One's a common, about 20 pound. The other is this mirror of a massive big fat belly on it and the big one. So I've set up in a single board and what you do, you wade out and you're looking at the tree line like we are instead of standing in the swim so you can get a nice cast and I'm probably landing, I'm using this spot and this spot but the place I'm seeing the fish is here, just in this cove and I'm on this big tree and I've got the rod in, first cast, put the rod down, within 10 minutes I've caught this 20 pound common. I've gone back around there and I'm just chucking a bit of crumb in to get these fish interested in food. He's obviously gone because he's been hooked and there's the little fat mirror and the fully scaled. So I fished the rest of the session, another 24 hours, nothing happened. I've got down there the next week, climbed up the tree, fully scaled, still sitting there, it's loving life in there, I keep feeding it, it won't come out. So um, I've chucked some bait in, got in the water, waded out, got the cast in, within about an hour I've had a bite and I've had that one, the little short fat mirror. She was 28 pound, mad looking carp. I remember the guy that ran the lake, I said to him, that fish will be dead by the spring. You can see it's rotting from the inside out from spawn. And it was, I was wading through some lilies about six months later and I bumped into it, it smelled awful. <laughs> but um, I'd caught it anyway, so now two of, two of them are out of the equation. And you, you hear that old saying, fish have bodyguards that look after them. Now the fully's in there on his own. So I'm thinking, this is it, next bite is the fully. The next week I've got down there, it's in the snag, I've cast tight to this snag and I ended up catching a fish in open water, a 32 pounder, but nothing come off the snag. Yet the fully was in there all weekend, but he's, he ain't there early morning. I go around the early morning, he ain't there. By 11 o'clock, sun's up, the fully's back in the snag. So I know he's using the pathway. So what I've done, on that bush line, I just got the plumbing rod out, and that's what I'm saying, it's so important to use these things, and it's all deep silt. And about a rod length and a half, I just kept going in little lines, it went bang. Not gravel, just like that fuddy silt. And I thought, right, I put one on that. So I've cast out a rod length and a half off the snag and fished one tight. Next morning, I've got a bite. This was the morning, a beautiful morning. And it's on the open water, a rod and length half off the snag. And as it turned in the water, I see these massive plates come up. And I knew that it was the big fully. And that was a 44 pound, first time out in 18 months. And that's why she's a tricky fish. She didn't feed on the snag. She fed in the snag, but she weren't willing to feed on the outside. So the trap was to feed the nearest area to it. But you never know these things. Hindsight's brilliant. If it hadn't worked, I wouldn't have told you. <laughs> that was the other side of her, but a mega carp, really, really mega. Hasn't been out since I caught it. I've seen her back in the snag, getting fed every week. She loves it. So yeah, that's the Scott Lloyd. So now I'm on full boilies, right? It's coming into sort of, we're getting, you know, the fish have spawned. When you talk about adding bait to swims, um, when fish have spawned, that's the time you want to really start giving them some bait. So the fish had gone, they'd gone on to spawn. So I've gone to whole boilie now. I know the fish are going to be all over it. And I'm, I've gone from putting three kilo of crumb and bits in in a session so I'm putting eight kilo in, but I ain't putting it all on one spot. 
while everyone else at night is sitting there watching YouTube or whatever, I do, I've got this thing, I set my alarm for about 1am, right? And I go to little bushes and things, and I give them 30 or 40, bu 30 or 40 baits all the time, nice and regular. And that'll go on for weeks. And you're not fishing these spots, but what you're doing, you're getting them prepped for when you're gonna fish them. So now I'm starting to use a lot of bait. Water's warmer. When the water warms up, the fish's metabolism is at full speed and he's eating as much as he can. When the water's really cold, fish have got less smell, less eyesight, and they ain't got as massive appetite. It's like feeding a baby a bacon sandwich feeding and boilies in the winter. But in the summer, when they can metabolize it, full boilies are brilliant. So I started, I was catching fish really regular off of these spots, prepping them all the time, and catching some of the known fish in the lake. I've done really well with mirrors, about sort of um, one in 20 fish is a mirror at Frimley. And I don't know why, it was about every third fish I was getting was a mirror. Which is great because what happens, a lot of the guys that fish Frimley, they end up staying on for years and years to try and catch the mirrors. And for some reason, for me it happened the other way around. I caught these big mirrors and the commons come later. So this particular session I'd got down, in the whole time I was on Frimley, I only caught two carp cast into a show in fish. And some mornings you could see 40 shows. And I'll do, uh, when I fish, I've got two rods on bait and I'll always have what I call a roamer. I'll have a rod that if a fish shows, there's not much bait over it, I can flick it on their heads. And I must have cast, I don't know, a hundred fish and it only ever worked twice. This was one of them, a 28. And um, I caught this out of a swim that was about 40 yards from where I wanted to do the night. So I basically caught it, moved to another swim and I thought, I still want to put a bait on that area, a single. So there was no one on the lake and I cast across about four swims. Nice long rod, <laughs> put the rod down and I thought if anyone turns up, I'll have to reel that in. <laughs> so anyway, the next morning, this single hook bait that I've cast out long, it's gone and I've had the other fully scale. A fish known as Jerry's at 41 pound. And yeah, it was a, uh, Really nice, like I say, to bump into the mirrors first before the commons, because Frimley's famous for its big commons, that when you go, it ain't till you join it, you realise there is actually a really good head of mirrors. There's about seven to eight mirrors over 40 pound. Do you know what I was saying about baiting spots with 30 or 40 boilies? This swim here, you can see, this bush line used to come along for about 40 yards, and people were losing fish in it, so they cut it out, and they made this swim really ugly. It was like a big plain swim. So I thought what I'll do, while everyone's avoiding the area, I'll bait the edge of this bush. Every night I was there, I would walk around there, one o'clock in the morning, 30 boilies, like that, and then trickle a few in the back. So we're not filling it in, we're just, what we're doing, we're giving them a free meal, and every time they come around there, there's something to eat. Anyway, I waited about six weeks to fish this area. So that's me getting a rod in. I'd literally wade up to the corner of it, flick it down, it's about six foot deep. And the first time I did it, it was covered in leaves. Within six weeks, it was just pure gravel where the fish had just been visiting it all the time. And um, I had six in a day, which is quite a lot out of there. You know, one fish in, t in 48 hours is good. And that particular day, I had three 30s in a row. This was the first one, a 33. And all these fish are 50 years old. That fish has been in there 50 years and you can see they're absolutely ancient. 
That was my second fish, another 33. And uh, that was the last of the trio of 30s, a 32 pound mirror. Which again, I was lucky, I bumped into another mirror. So things were going really well. And uh, it's about bait, you know, like if you're fishing a lake over a prolonged period and you look at your year calendar, that's what I do. I'll mark on there when I can get to the lake. And with Frimley, it's 120 miles from the house. It's not like I'm popping down there, you know. So every time I'm there, I make sure that I go and ply a little bit of bait to an area. And again, I caught quite a lot of carp consistently. Some sessions I'd get two or three, other sessions I'd get one. So this particular session, this fish, I was fishing a swim called the stick that's got a very shallow bar. And what you do, you fish up to the back of this bar and um, the fish come along the front of it and that's how people catch them out there. And this particular day, I kept getting liners. I was fishing a slack line and the bobbins were going up and down all the time. And I thought, them fish are definitely coming in close and then coming the other way around the bar. So what I've done, I reeled in one rod and I literally dropped it to my left like that off my rod tip put it down and I thought, you never know, I might catch something, you know what I mean? Like, it's not an area no one fishes. Within about half an hour, the rod's ripped off, literally dragged the rod in and had this 39 pound common. And it's just, you know, them areas, if you're getting liners, you, know, you always know the fish, they're actually closer to you than what your rig is. So it's always, you know, good to just pull one rod back. If you ain't gone again, you're still getting liners, pull it back again and locate the route they're traveling in and out of a snag. So I had this fish, but what happened, it blew up the swim. You know when you have a fish, it just ruins the area. So what I did, I moved swims. I went down to the uh, big snag that I've been fishing really regular, got the rod out, and in the morning, got a bite and had the biggest mirror in the lake, which is a fish called the Big Plated. This fish is absolutely ancient. Honestly, it was, uh, I was worried when I was doing the photos. You know when you catch an old fish and you think, I can't wait till it gets caught again? because uh, I don't want to be the last one to catch it. But this fish has gone nearly 50 pound quite a few times. But this was after spawning and she was 43.12. But mega to catch. Yeah, proper old girl. And um, I'll be honest with you, when I put her back, I thought she's on her way out, that fish. She's down to 43 pound. But she was out this winter again at 49 pound. She put all her weight back on and she's looking really well. So that's it really, I'd caught the sort of three big scalies and um, more by luck than judgment, you know, I just happened to bump into the mirrors first. Now we're getting on till later in the year and I started to bait other areas really and this area here, it was a swim, um, I think they call it the twin and as you come down the lake, out in front of you here, there's like a lot of gravel seams but on the right there's a massive tree that lays in the water so what I'd done, every session I was down there for a, a, about two weeks later, I baited it and the bloody big one come out of it. And I thought, I did, you've got to take positive from that. This was the second time I'd baited an area and Charlie's mate had come from it. And what I took from that weren't, oh God, someone else had it. I thought, that fish is eating my bait. I've put it in a spot and it's come from it. I've changed the area to get the total other end of the lake, started feeding it again and it's come out there. So now I'm thinking in my head, not being big, this is a matter of time. This fish is liking what I'm feeding and it's searching it out. But all I need is a good, consistent two weeks of feeding and I'm pretty confident that big common will be in the area. This particular session, I had a bit of a red letter day and um, I ended up, I moved swims. 
I'd done a night in another swim and then I thought, right, I'm going to do a night on that swim I've been baiting. I moved into it and literally within 10 minutes had a 39 pound common. And it was one of them days, you know, if you're going to get a day bite, it was overcast, wind pumping down the end of the lake. About 20 minutes after that, I had another one, 38 pound. And um, nothing else happened that day. I think I had a 26 pounder in the evening. And then the next morning I caught what they say is the oldest carp in the lake, a fish called Lily at 42 pound. And she's about 55 years old, that fish now. So she's really getting on. It's not often now I catch fish older than myself. <laughs> so it's good every now and then to catch one. So at this point, what I'm missing out is I ain't getting down the lake every week. I'm not doing two nights every week. Sometimes there's trade shows, there's promotion videos. I've been away, probably out of the country, five, six weeks by this point. So I'm getting down there when I can. But this was just before the Euro Aqua trip. And I was going to Euro Aqua on a high. You know, and you think, I'm buzzing now. I've caught one of the good ones in the lake and we're off somewhere different. So, Euro Aqua. Um, while we was driving to Euro Aqua, um, one of our friends was fishing it and he phoned me and he said, it's terrible. He said, the whole lake's done eight fish this week. I said, you're joking. He said, no, he said, it's terrible. He said, it's fishing so slow. The week before I'd done even less. Because you think you go there and every week it's doing 100 carp and it's, it's just not like that. So we're on our way there. You stay in Germany your first night and then you drive again all the way to Hungary and then you stay in a hotel in Hungary for the night, the night before. It's a right old drive. And while we're in the hotel the night before, this lad, his name's Darren, rang us again. He went, there was 12 fish out last night. I said, 12? There's only been eight out a week. He went, yeah, they turned up with maggots. He said, um, we all fish one night. He said, I've had a 90. He goes, he's had an 80. He goes, and it's on the last night. I went, we're turning up the next day. I was like, yes. So the guy who uh, runs Ridge Monkey Paul, I said, mate, I said, this, this couldn't go better. He went, why? I said, well, you have to buy their boilies. I said, no, I don't want to buy their boilies. They're rubbish. They're honestly, right? Everyone sneaks a bit of bait with them so they can have some decent bait. But I said, if we've got to buy maggots because they make you buy their bait, we may as well buy something that's going to bloody work. You know what I mean? So we've turned up. We got there. The weather conditions got about five degrees warmer and it was a full moon. Everything just aligned. You know, if anything was going to go right, it was going to be this week. So we started off really well. Our target for the trip was an 80 pounder. And on the first night, we had four 60s and I think four 50s on the first night on these maggots. They come out in a boat. They literally have got these blue drums and they put 25 litres of maggots between your markers. And I'd gone out, found some spots, put some marker poles in and um, we just bait up with maggots. And a good tip if anyone goes there, if you're going to pay a lot of money, because they take the piss, I tell you, right? <laughs> it's really expensive, right? to fish the maggots. The last thing you want to be doing with maggots, right, is spreading them over 25 yards. You want to put two poles out. We had three poles. We had six rods, two on the outer pole and then two on the inner pole. So that's your six across between the two of yours. And then you bait up nice and tight to the pole. So it brings the fish in. So that's what we did. And um, yeah, we hit the ground running. We had a really good first night. This one's a 72 pole. He, he, was, he done really well. We probably got about the same amount of takes me and Paul, but where Paul's been to Euro Aqua five times and I've only ever been once, I catch a 50 and it's coming, it's coming out. Paul was unhooking them in the net and going, no, we're for big ones. And I was thinking, I'm going to get them on the bank. 
So it went really well. We both had some lovely fish. That was a 65 pound common. And um, you, don't, you can't believe how many big fish are in this lake till you go there. The first week I was there, I saw 25 70s on the bank. It's ridiculous. But when you go there, you're not guaranteed that week. That's the risk, you know what I mean? So yeah, on the f I think it was the second day or third day, Paul's caught his PB, 88 pound. That's what we come for. It was absolutely buzzing, the pair of us. As long as one of us had an 80 pounder, we was happy. Beautiful fish as well. And you, you think they're coming out all the time? This fish hadn't been out for two years and they knew it because it had a scratch on it. I'm not saying it's a hard lake, it ain't, but the fish don't get caught as often as you think they get caught. So yeah, Paul's had this fish. Then the day after that, I've had my PB, 93 pound. Monstrous fish. Um, they fight like mad. You pick up the rods, you can't do anything with them for about 10 minutes. And then like any carp, they start to weaken and then they roll on the top. And at this point, Paul's had an 88, I had a 93. We could have gone home happy if we didn't catch another fish, but we're four days in. And I said to Paul, we've got 12 nights. You know what I mean? Like something bigger than this could happen. So that's the boat. So they go out on bait up for you, right? And they go out in the boat, you pay them in the morning. Sorry, you tell them what you want. So it was 25 litres of maggots in the morning, 50 kilo of hemp every morning. Now some guys were having that morning and evening, but what you've got to remember, that's 320 euros a go. It's ridiculous. So I said to Paul, look, they put the bait in. Within 40 minutes, we get bites. I said, and then we get bites through the day. I said, and then it slows down and we might get one in the evening. I went, I don't want to be up all night playing fish. I went, let's just catch them through the day and in the evening we'll have a beer and don't worry about it. I said, he said, yeah, I'm up for that. So that's what we did. That was our baiting plan. Feed them in the morning, have a decent night's kip. What I did do is I took 100 kilo of my own bait. They don't mind. As long as you're buying bait, they know everyone's going to bring a bit of bait and I would crush it up. And I think we did so well because everyone else was just having maggots and hemp and we added boily to it. So when these big shoals of fish come in, just not have, they'd smash the maggot along with the roach and everything, but we had boilies down there as well. So we sustained them in there, like I was talking about on Frimley. It kept them there for much longer. So, I'll lead you on to this. It was now the end of the week, right? Everyone's gone home, but we're staying a week. There was only us and another couple, and uh, Max Cottis had been thrown off because <laughs> he brought too much bait, basically. They, they got the ump, jibbed him off. So uh, Max had gone, and when Max went, he went, um, do you want any of that stuff? And I went, well, I don't want any of bait. I said, he said, I've got some bacon, so he took his bacon, and I went, I know you, Max, you've got maggot. And he went, I've got 40 gallon of maggot. And I went, I'll have that, right? So I vid it behind the bivvy. Max has gone, it's the end of the week, and this maggot's starting to look a little bit ropey-like, and I said to Paul, everyone's gone, we've got the use of the boat. I went, I'm gonna go out, and I'm putting in 40 gallons of maggots. I went, because they're going off. So I've gone out there and I've put all this maggot across our markers. We're the only ones there, like. Anyway, about an hour's gone, and Paul went, we've killed it. There's not a butt, there's not a single thing in our swim, right? And I went, yeah, I've fucked it up, and I. So anyway, started to see this odd bubble, bing, bing, then a fish show. Then it just went mental. So we've got six rods going at the same time. It was mad, right? And we're not, we're not talking with 20 pounders. They've got 50s and 60s on them. It's ridiculous, like, and we're pulling these rods in, 
And the guy who runs the place, he's going, what's going on? I said, don't know, it's just gone mad on us, mate. <laughs> and yeah, this happened. Look at that. Look at it. It's a fucking joke. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Woo! Yes! <laughs> Hundred and one pounds. <laughs> Hundred and one. Light on? Yeah. <sighs> one hundred and one pounds. <laughs> My first <laughs> treble. <laughs> Crazy. <sighs> no, it's great over there. Tell you what, you know, like we all go fishing, right? And um, I started fishing when I was about six, seven years old. And um, at the point when I caught that fish, I had a flashback to being a kid in a stream with, a, with my mum's tights with a coat hanger through them, catching sticklebacks. And you know what I mean? You think, I was looking at it thinking, fucking hell. Do you know what I mean? It blew me away for about two days. I just walked around in a trance. So, yeah. We had the most amazing day. We had a hundred pounder and, and plenty of fifties and things like that. It was crazy. It was on about, it was probably on about 60 fish by now, late fifties. And um, we had another week to go. So things were going really well. And it, I said to Paul, Paul had this common and then he had a 70 pound common. And I said to him, I'd like a big common. And he went, you're taking a piss. <laughs> I said, what? I said, I've got a week. I said, I wouldn't mind, I said, I wouldn't mind a 70 pound common. So the next day, I'm sitting there and Paul had just had um, another, he'd done really well with 70s. And um, I've got a bite and I'm playing this fishing while he's playing one. No, and you've both got one on. And I'm talking away and it come in like a dog on a lead, this fish. And I'm just playing it. And all of a sudden it come up and I thought, oh my God. And it rolled on the top and it didn't really do much. Not like the 100. The 100, I had it on for 25 minutes and literally my legs would go in. And when it come up to the surface, I was shitting myself. But this... <laughs> This common come up and straight away I went, quick, get the net under it. They've got the net under it. And the guy that runs the place, Michelle his name is, weird name for a bloke. He's, um, he's basically come over and he's looked in the net and he said, that's the biggest common in the world. And I said, what? He said, yeah, it's 102 pound. And I was like, he's taking a piss. I only had 101 yesterday. So <laughs> it ended up, it was, it was 97. So slightly down in weight, but this is the video of it. What a joke. And they're also two fish, eh? Massive what? common. Right. Massive mirror. <laughs> that was a treble take of a 56, a 67 and a 97. Going off in front of us. Oh, Yes, look at that. New PB common, 97 pounds. Look at that! <laughs> amazing! Absolutely amazing! Yeah, she was a really well-portioned fish. 
Oh, you can't hold them up for long because they're so big. Look at the width of the thing. This has been the trip of a lifetime. I don't think I'll ever repeat it again. 390s in one week. Crazy. You say go. Yes! Give it! Oh. Ah, love it! Thank you! Amazing! Thank you! Oh. So that was it, yeah, it was the common. So, you know, like things couldn't really get any better, and um, at this point, the swim was just rocking. Don't get me wrong, there was other guys, they were doing well there. We weren't the only ones catching. The lake was fishing its absolute nuts off. The guy that runs the lake, he had said, I've not seen a lake fish like this in 10 years. So we'd really hit the right week. The next morning I had another one, which was a typical Euro aqua fish, 85 pound. And um, at this point, I didn't know, but it was the most fish over 80 pound caught in one session ever. But I didn't know that at the time. So I've had this other fish and behind me, you can see, this is not an out of bounds, but you can't really fish it but you can fish up it. And there's a little island, and all week I'd been baiting behind the island, 50, 60 boilies. No maggots, just boilies. And on the last sort of 36 hours, I said to Paul, I'm reeling in my rods. I said, you, you have all the marks. And he went, all right. So Paul's fished all the marks. He had about another three or four 50s and a 60. And I put a rod behind the island. And he said, you know behind there does all the small fish. That's the rumor on there. And I said, yeah. And he said, We've got a long drive tomorrow. He said, if you catch like a 40 or a 50, don't be waking me up. Because every time I was having a 50, I was going up. <laughs> so I said, all right. So all night that rod stayed quiet. And in the morning, I got a bite and had another 85 pounder. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. So yeah, Paul didn't talk to me all the way home. <laughs> but no, yeah. So by the end of it, I'd had five fish over 85 pounds. And they're probably like, Probably never repeat it again, and uh, if I don't, I don't care. But um, will you ever catch another 100 pounder? When I caught an 88 pounder years ago in Croatia, I remember looking at it, you only catch your first 20 and you think, there's no way I'm not catching another one then. And that's what I thought when I caught that 88, and there's no way I'm not having another 100 pounder. So we're back to England, and uh, like people were saying to me, fucking hell, you're going to go back to England, start fishing a normal lake again. You ain't going to be able to do that. That's like saying I've been marlin fishing and I'm never going to fish for a carp. You know what I mean? It was like, it's not the same thing. I'm back here and every one of these carp is worth 10 of them carp, in my opinion. And I'm back, here, back at Frimley and I sort of hit the ground running. The bait was really established. I fished this swim and it's sort of um, the very first swim I ever fished on the lake where I told you there was a bar at 12 wraps. I've got into that swim and I knew it was good for the autumn because of what had happened the year before. And I've baited it up quite heavily and the first night I'd come, a lad had come down on a social and he went to me, you go down the fish and chip shop tonight and I'll go tomorrow night. And I said, 
what, and leave my rods out? And he said, yeah. And I remember I sprinted down this fish and chip shop, grabbed them and come back, right? And I reckon I just sat on the bench. He gave me my sander box and the rod went. <laughs> and I had this lever, 30 pound. I was having the year of luck. I should have done the lottery more. But um, yeah, I had this fish called the little lever at 30 pound. And then the next morning, had a common of 29 pound. And yeah, I was really pleased to have been away for like basically a month. We're now into basically the start of November. And to get the fish, you know they haven't forgot what the bait is, they're still eating. So I get down the next week, and this is sort of where my bait's gone to now, because we're into November. And remember what I said about metabolism and fish being able to eat stuff. I'm now making the food items smaller. And I'd been using this all year, which was the new fish meal from Mainline and I'd been mixing it with hybrid. Now hybrid's a very good winter bait, but a fish meal isn't. So if you're fishing two baits, that means as I move into the winter, I can just go straight onto hybrid, and I've got a good winter bait that I've also put in through the year, and that is why I do mixed bait a lot. So I've got down to the lake, and again, I think we're coming onto the new moon, because it's a month later, and um, I got in this swim, the wind's blowing down into the single boards, and it looks, you can see how moody it looks, it's blowing in there. And I thought, if, I catch a, if I'm ever going to catch a big one, it's this session, you know what I mean? And the tree line I've been fishing, that's to the left. And the swim I fished a week before and had the lever and the common, that's here, behind these trees. And the, and the bar is dead in line with this V. And what I'd done earlier in the year, I found the bar, popped a marker up, walked all the way around the lake, stood in here and thought, if I'm ever in this swim, I know that bar's on that tree. So it's good, if you've got a spot and you can fish it from multiple swims, pop a marker up and look where it is. So I've got in here, I've put the rods on the banker spot, and then I've put two rods out on this bar. One, one on the top of it, one down on the side. Next morning I've received a bite, 34 pound mirror, and um, that was my 49th fish of the year out of Frimley. And I was really pleased and I thought to myself, wouldn't it be nice if the 50th was a special one? My 50th fish was the smallest carp I caught all year. It was a little fully scaled mirror that he'd stocked that year about this big. And I thought, God, brilliant. So um, let him go, like, but I was happy, you know what I mean? I'd had this another, they're all 50 years old, apart from the stockies. So you've got to be pleased with everything you catch. And then that night, it absolutely poured down. It was pouring down when I caught this fish in the morning. And these two swans, right, they drove me mental. I ate swans, right? Um, they, I, I opened a spot, I went like that, I don't know what happened, but it hit there and it opened up between three lines. And these swans, they knew it was there. So all night long, I even fed them a massive patch of bait, thinking, all night, bib, 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 bib. In the morning, I've sat up, right, and it's about seven o'clock, raining, and uh, my rod's going. And I've sat up, picked up this stone and thrown it, this one, I went, fuck off. Now you're just at the end of the thing. As this, as this swan's going off, the rod kept going. Anyway, it was uh, this. Um, probably half seven this morning. Swans have been driving me mad all night. 
a spom opened up over my lines and they were coming in all night long and just wiping my line out. So I was in and out of the bivvy, got to about half seven and I was sound asleep. The alarm's gone, I've looked out and there's the swan over my line. I've jumped out, thrown a stick at him and as he's swimming off the uh, right hand rod keeps going. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not nasty to animals, I just don't like swans. I instantly knew it was a good fish and my line was running through a snag and out. Must have picked something up on the bottom. Luckily I give it a bit of a shake with the rod tip underwater and the line's popped off and I'm in contact with the fish. And uh, yeah, straight away I knew it was a good one. And when it rolled, I thought, this is it. This is definitely a good common, probably a 40 pounder. And uh, yeah, Charlie's mate. <laughs> Still can't believe it. 56 pounds and 10 ounces. Let's take a look. So this is the actual fight of the fish. So I've hooked it out to the right hand side and uh, it's renowned for not fighting to be fair, this fish. It does just wallow around. And obviously at this point, I'm thinking this looks like a 40 pounder. And um, yeah, until it went in the net. I've had this GoPro a year, and honestly, this is the first time I ever got it to work. So like, you know, we all go fishing. When you're targeting one fish, I don't think there's, there's no bigger buzz than catching the one. Like you can catch 10 big ones, but when you, you catch one that you've been dreaming and thinking about, it, it's the ultimate buzz, you know? How are you feeling, Dave? Oh, mate. Over the moon. The campaign's lasted just over a year. Full winter, full summer. And now uh, I'm holding the prize. The jewel in the crown, Charlie's mate. New UK PB, 56 pounds and 10 ounces. Of mega old British common calf. <laughs>
everything happened right that year. You know what I mean? Everything, and it don't always go right, does it? We all have nightmares. And um, that week, the weather was spot on. It was the sort of second week of November. The fish are massive. It, you couldn't have caught it at a better time, like. It's my blowback rig. Nothing special. Yeah, that's what I've got to say. That hook, not that actual one, but that pattern, which is the beat point, I've had 53 bites from Frimion and landed 51 of them. <laughs> Unbelievable. And that was um, my season in a bag. So thanks for listening, everyone. Well, there we have it. Some absolutely superb content. A brilliant weekend to see live. But you know what? If you didn't come down to the show, you got the chance to catch up anyway. Make sure you do come down, though, to our next open day. And don't worry, we've got more content coming out too. Part two will be out in two weeks' time. Remember to follow us on social media for updates and information on future guests. See you next time.